McNulty stunning for anyone to get up above Cargill and find Bennett. It's into the box. McNulty cut back for Roberts. It's Gary Roberts no, from Bosby. are leading in the fourth round of the FA Cup. Mark McNulty, but a good chance by Doyle for McNulty on the edge. Mark McNulty oh, short yes. for Bosby. Smashes it past McCormack. One by Doyle. Finished by the returning Mark McNulty. First left blood for Bosby. They're in dreamland early here at Bratton. There's a through ball to Jamal Lowe. Jamal Lowe's onside. The flag stayed down. Jamal Lowe. Nonchalant. Fantastic. Brilliant. Pompey will be promoted at this rate. That is it. Pompey are champions. They won League Two in the most dramatic of circumstances. The PO4 podcast with Hugh Bunce. Proud to be Pompey. Hi, Bombay fans, and welcome to PO Forecast episode 100. That's right, we're on the 100th episode, and we've got an absolute banger for you this week. Let's get into it. Joining the podcast today is Andy Mitchmore. How are you, Andy? No, I'm, I'm well, thank you. Yeah, it was uh, nice of the Blues to give us a, a positive performance to reflect on in the as we bring up the 100th episode. Yes, excellent topics coming up, I have no <laughs> doubt. Exactly. It was, it was, as I said to you, when we were chatting about it at the game, it was a self-inflicted assault on Portsmouth's promotion hopes yesterday. But before we get into that, I introduce Freddie Webb. How are you, Freddie? I'm doing very well, Hugh. Thank you. Uh, Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? Probably like, what, two, three weeks since I've been on. My internet's been down for 10 days and I'm not going to let Portsmouth's dreadful performance, which we'll go through later, break my positivity because... In my personal life, both my parents have got the vaccine this this week. Fred, I think hey. on, on top of that, Fred, I'm just excited that Talk Talk have discovered anything north of London. That's that's a good thing. <laughs> like, screw uh, Pfizer. Uh, it's all about it's all about you guys. Deserve. I mean, this is broadband. It's brand new, right? That's probably I'm just pleased you're off that's dial-up. Why I had to wait ten days for them to fix it. My exactly. God, what to get his dad off the phone for this. What a exactly, yeah. that was. We organised this with Freddie over MSN Messenger. It's been like, <laughs> it's huge for him now to be on broadband. We're absolutely buzzing, yeah. Better than the vaccine, Fred. Uh, yeah, both parents got the vaccine. I had to shield for, I think, counting seven to eight months because of my dad, his condition. So that, but that's all sorted. When those two weeks are up, after he's vaccinated, I can actually leave the village I live in, thank God. I'll be able to enjoy myself. So be Excellent nice. stuff, Fred. Well, mate, yeah. We are both, and I'm sure everyone listening, are really happy for you, mate. And on that burst of positivity, let's get into what we're talking about today. So, first of all, we're going to review the game against Bristol Rovers. Following on from that, we're going to talk to, we put a question out to you and following the Bristol Rovers result, what do we need to change? What needs to change in this Pompey side? We're all feeling quite passionate about this subject, so we're going to try and get through as many as possible today. This is going to be a bumper episode. We'll try and get through all of your queries. I say all of them because Andy looks really happy about that. Following on from that, we're going to speak to Dan from Up the Mighty Pool podcast to have his view to preview the Blackpool game. And then... Because it's the 100th episode, we needed to bring you something extra, something special. And we've got former Pompey captain and legend Johnny Ertel joining the podcast as well for an extended chat from everything from uh, being in a garden centre as a kid growing up against his career from football, all the way through to moving over to, to England, playing for Pompey and all that entails. So let's get started. 
Bristol Rovers, I thought we're going to get a win. I even put a couple of pounds on the centre-backs to score. I was that confident they'd have a great game. It didn't happen. Pompey crumbled. Boys, please help me out here. What went wrong? Right. This is a bumper episode. If we're going to cover what went wrong, we're going to need... Yeah, how long like, do we have? That, we need to be above that two-hour garage band limit for editing, I think. <laughs> two and a half hours, Andy. Two and a half hours. That, that might just about cut Ooh. it. I mean... <laughs> Where do you start? I mean, it got to the point we we watched that penalty in the last minute and it didn't go in, and it was just it just seemed fitting, didn't it, for the evening? I mean, I, I'm sure that we're going to cover individuals here and individual mistakes, which eventually, you know, over the course of the ninety minutes, did cost Pompey. But I mean, we we sit here sometimes when Pompey haven't got a result, and I've sat here multiple times and said we didn't get a result; it wasn't brilliant. But you could see that there was 110%, and everyone left everything on the pitch. And sometimes it doesn't just doesn't go your way. And we said that multiple times. Last night didn't feel like that. There were people jogging back rather than sprinting and tracking back. And I know it's tiring playing football, but as professional footballers, when you track back, if you're a defensive player, I damn well expect you to put a shift in when you track back. There were individual errors that are going to happen from time to time. It was unfortunate they all seemed to happen in in one go, but it was. You know, it, it wasn't good enough, if we're going to put it frankly. And we're going to go through lots of comments that say that. But, I mean, Freddie's got his XG stuff and XA stuff lined up, ready to go, I've no doubt. Pompey should have scored more than they did. They should have conceded fewer than they did. And I'm sure the stats will tell a story. But, Freddie, I don't need those stats. I watched the game. It wasn't good enough. It's as simple as that. And I am a generally a very positive Pompey fan. And I'm not, I'm not going to sit here laying into individuals. But as a side, that was not good enough. And they will know that after the game. And it's it's rare that Pompey... I wouldn't say anger, because that's a very strong word, but it's rare I come away from a game and it's genuinely irritated me because of what I've just watched. And we, we've lost many times and it hasn't got to that point. But last night, it, 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 was a, it was a bit of a slap, to be honest with it you. It was deflating, wasn't it? It yeah. was all the positivity we've been talking about for a few weeks, even with a couple of blips... It was, it was like a balloon being burst, wasn't it? Just there was nothing left after that game. That big balloon we had blown up after a 2-2 draw with Plymouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, in, I'll talk, we'll talk in general terms first. Yeah, the defending was awful. We know that. Mainly individual errors, but you could tell from even the first 20 minutes they were misplacing passes when they were trying to break out from the back properly. The key thing that I noticed was even in the first half when it was nil-nil, they were panicky on the ball, very panicky on the ball. And they were and because Bristol Rovers were sat back in their nice shape and the five at the back, just willing to just pat the penalty area and, and kick around, Ports have panicked in possession, even though they had loads of it. They either didn't know what to do in possession, so always went to the wide areas to try and st- stretch the defence, or they punted it. Uh, a lot, <laughs> apart from apart from apart from a few instances, I could bring. I'll, I'll bring up some stats later on to try and make it a bit better. But it was not good enough. It was awful. I, I don't need to. I'm not going to tell you otherwise. And again, I, I think what what makes it even worse is the timing of it. If also win that game, they go second, and we and it looks to be a lot more positive than it already is. It reminds me of just so many times where this is the key game. And they lay an egg. I'm sick of it, to be honest. What? What an odd analogy. I've never heard that before <laughs> in my life, Fred. Lay an egg. 
Is that like just bottling it, or maybe yeah, is that a northern it. thing? Uh, no, it's northern. A, it, I, I got it from a fucking ice hockey podcast, actually. So it was. It's not a northern this thing. Explains why I've not heard of it because I don't watch crap sports. Fair enough. I, I definitely see what you mean about it just being underwhelming for the full ninety. I mean, there were moments when it wasn't just a you know punted ball over the top or whatever. Like, but there was only one sort of outlet that we looked dangerous, and that was along the floor through buyers who I'm sure we're going to cover is the one sort of him and Williams, I think are the only two players to really come out of the game with a huge amount of credit. I thought Williams played fairly well for, for parts of the game and bias throughout. Williams definitely um, put in a shift. Yeah. Exactly. He looked tired though, didn't he? I've got to say, he looked yeah. a bit tired. He I mean, he did, he put in a massive shift. He was running around. He was linking up with buyers as well, which I thought was good. He actually seemed to be on maybe the only player on the same wavelength as him for his movement. So let's just talk about the goal. Let's start there. Let's go through the match facts. Let's go through the bits and bobs, and then we'll go for the bigger picture. Cannon does well. He's tenacious on the ball. He's got some criticism, which we'll come on to later, but he does well in this situation to start the game. He wins the ball back. He lays it through to Byers, who picks out a pass that maybe some other members of the team couldn't even manage. And it was great vision to lay the ball through to Williams on the wing. Williams does what we need him to do. He puts the ball into a dangerous position into the box and allows Marcus to score. That one had to go in. It did. Pompey take a 1-0 lead. At that point, I'm feeling pretty comfortable. I'm thinking, yeah, we're creating chances. We look okay. So it wasn't like we are completely dreadful from the start, was it, Freddie? No, it wasn't completely dreadful. It was a very good move, actually. You could tell that Porsche wanted to exploit the wider areas early, which makes sense if you've got a team trying to sit back a little bit. <clears throat> if you just pass the ball around slowly in the middle of the park, all the time, then they're just not going to move. They're going to sit. They're just going to stand off. So trying to stretch the defensive line by going out to the wing is a good idea. Again, you said it. Lovely ball by Byers. The through balls takes out two or three defenders, and it, it, which Williams gets across. And it was it was a, it was a nice goal. It just it, it just um, fell to bits from there, unfortunately. And why do we think Pompey managed to play what I would say against Bristol Rovers? What they struggled against and there was no real pressure on them, was that a real high press? You look at how Pompey set up. I'm looking at the, at the player stats here and their positions in the game. It was clearly a 4-3-3 with Naylor in a pivot position with Byers and Cannon there supposed to be pressing from the front and then the front three pressing in front of them. This, ses- this system was set up for Pompey to play a high tempo, high press with Byers and Cannon coming in behind the front three. Is it a system issue or did that just not work because... Pompey were off their game. Probably a bit of both. I mean, it's, I don't know why they didn't do the high press, actually, especially because you could argue that, oh, there's no point in pressing Bristol Rovers defenders because they're just going to lump it long to a younger and Hamlin anyway. Well, you, you will cause mistakes by doing that, and that's when Ports will get most of their goals. You've just ignored the, ma- the major source of goals. You're relying on creativity afterwards. Well, Freddie, when we spoke to Max as the match preview, he highlighted that they were really, really susceptible and vulnerable to the high press. And it was potentially somewhere that he thought they were going to struggle, is if we implemented that, they were going to struggle to play out from the back and they were going to make mistakes. So, Yeah, and they were talking we about the fact that you know players like Baldwin, who we've seen play at Sunderland, etc., have a mistake in them. You know, they see themselves as ball-playing defenders, but they do tend to turn the ball over in dangerous positions. A lot like what happened to Portsmouth in this game as well. But instead, we didn't press from the front. We didn't play to our strengths and play to their weaknesses. And the team looked very disjointed. Even with all the possession. 
Yeah, even they looked as if they just didn't know what to do with that much possession, which is worrying. All right, let's move on to the first Bristol Rovers goal. You gotta say their finishing was pretty damn good, wasn't it? And oh, your youngest finish for the first goal was excellent. No, no doubt in my mind. It's just it shouldn't have been there in the first place. Is that X Haven and Waterlooville a younger? As everybody is reminded, as X Haven and Waterlooville a younger, the uh, the player who Portsmouth did scout, but then basically just wrote off and didn't sign him. Yeah, haven't gave us the first option. Apparently, apparently, as one of the clubs in the local area, they always give us the the first option. Apparently, on those sort of players, so they came to Portsmouth, said, "Look, we've got a player here. You want to have a look at him?" Pompey said, "No, no, thank you. He's too quick and too direct to scoring. We don't want that guy around." Uh. <laughs> pretty, pretty cynical there, Hugh. Oh, mate, I'm trying to be positive. I'm trying to be positive. We talked about individual errors as being a big reason for Pompey losing this game. First goal, James Bolton goes up, misses it. You don't really want to see Raggett being put one-on-one with an attacker who's really quick and direct. Andy seems to think it wasn't his fault either, but James Bolton's got to be at fault for this one, Andy, isn't it? You've got strong feelings. Talk us through it. Yeah, I'm, well, strong feelings is probably exaggerating it. I think if, again, I'm not going to stand sit here and slam individual players who have had a decent run of games before this and had an off night, but it is clearly an individual mistake from Bolton um, to essentially have the ball played through him, for want of a better word. Um, and then Raggett was showing up for pace a couple of times last night while he was isolated. Yeah, that happened here. He, he wasn't able to to get a foot in immediately and then had to sort of try and track the runner who was, yeah, just faster than him, to be honest with you. And I saw a couple of people criticise Raggett for not getting the block in. I've watched it back quite a few times. If If he isn't a faster player... I don't really see what else he can do there. Raggett isn't the sort of centre-back you necessarily want in a one-on-one situation against a fast attacking player. That's not that's not where his skill set is and he shouldn't have been put in that position and wouldn't have been if it wasn't for a different individual mistake. So yeah, I don't I, I don't buy the whole over-criticising Raggett for that one personally. That, that was a James Bolton mistake. And then obviously, yeah, it's a decent finish. But they, as Fred said, that, that opportunity shouldn't have been there. Has Bolton played himself out the side with that? Yes. Yeah. Arguably, arguably, he shouldn't have been in the side anyway. Because I still find it strange that Jack Watmore wasn't even on the bench for that game. Yep. Personally, Andy Moon interviewed Gallon afterwards. Wasn't an injury. Wasn't a look at the pitch and think, do we want to risk Jack Watmore on that? No. It seemed to be a selection issue and it goes back to the argument of do you pick players on form or do you pick your best players I genuinely think you always pick your best players most of the time so you wouldn't have started Bolton no okay I personally I would have done I said I think I said in the pod last week I think he didn't give himself he didn't give anyone a reason to drop him he's been really good the last couple of games filling in at centre back I have no issue with the fact that he started there and I personally don't think you should be dropping a player for one individual error. I mean, I, I personally would, obviously, in general, rather Jack Watmore started at centre-back because he is a centre-back by trade and has proved himself repeatedly in that position. But I'm not going to sit here with 20-20 hindsight and say, oh, what's Kenny doing starting Bolton at centre-back? Because <laughs> I called that it was, I thought it was the right thing before the game as well. It's an unfortunate mistake and it's it wasn't an, you know, it wasn't a strong moment for him and you wouldn't expect League One Centre backs being, you know, doing playing football as a full time job to to have that mistake in the locker that often, but 
in terms of his place in the team, I'd have started him. Yeah, I don't have an issue with that. So I think yeah, we're on slightly different pages there, Fred. I'm going to come in and say that I thought it's fine to start James Bolton again. I think if you get to a system with it as a management team where somebody comes in, arguably plays as well as Jack Watmore had done. Jack hadn't had the best two games before that, but even before those two games with the the red card, I don't think it was a red card, and the bits and bobs that went on with that before the two own goals. Again, I don't blame Jack for that either. But you had a few games before that when he wasn't as good and Braggart looked better out of the centre-back pairing. I thought it was fine then. James Bolton comes into the side, doesn't really put a foot wrong, looks good and comfortable there. I always had a feeling there would be a game where it didn't go down that well and Jack came back into the side. I didn't think that was going to be a, one of these things that was going to stick for the rest of the season with what more isolated on the bench. However... I didn't think it would be the first game back. The first game back that came in, unfortunately, it doesn't work out for James Bolton. However, there'll be another opportunity in this season. I'm sure he has to come back in. We all know Watmore's fitness occasionally, you know, he's a bit of a risk in that sense. So I'm sure James is going to be back in the team at some point. But for, for the time being, I think Jack Watmore's going to come in in the centre-back position. Let's just talk about John Marquez quickly and we'll come on to it in more detail later on when we speak about your comments. But that was an awful miss. George Byers with a great through ball, one-on-one with the keeper. He plays it through. I was like, yes, come on. That's got to be a goal. All over this, John Marquez. And unfortunately, he doesn't lift the ball over. And then later on, the penalty that Andy says sums it up. I knew he was going bottom left when he was taking it. It was really obvious where he was going. It reminded me actually of a penalty. Um, I can't remember who took it now, but it... It was against Barnsley years ago. I was in the back of the Fratton end and it was the game that ended, I think it was either 0-0 or 1-1 or when Viv Solomon Otterball won a penalty in the box and we took so long to take it and we were just staring into the corner where it was going mm. and just the body position was all lined up. It was obvious he was going there. This is a striker shot of confidence and I'm just going to say about the fact that looking at this team, can Marquis turn it around or does he need to be benched? It's a really tough one. I mean, I'll go over both chances before I go on to that. His touch was awful for that goal. If you're looking at it from an XG perspective, that uh, that chance, that he, that one-on-one that he missed, the, that was more likely to be a goal than the goal he actually scored. The penalty, I think he's, I think Marcus is sort of player to wait for the goalkeeper to make a move, then put it the other way. He didn't, so he just picked a corner and didn't pick it very well. You are looking now at a point where, stick or twist again, we're talking about small margins again, aren't we, as we always do. You could see the scenario where if you bench him, his confidence is on the floor and he doesn't get it back. Or do you again say, oh, it's the system, you have to build the system around him. But he's a, but this is his... I think we've given him enough chances with that, haven't we? It's really tough and I actually don't, I actually don't have an opinion on that, to be honest with you. It's a, probably the hardest decision that you have team selection-wise for the next game. I'll jump in then, Fred. I think the thing that I noticed from uh, from last night's game, and at half-time I went back and watched quite a lot of the sort of the highlights of the first half a few times over, was Marquis's movement is still really good. Like, his, his, his run to create that first opportunity with the header that hit the post, really good run. Mm-hmm. The vision to make that run for the through ball from Byers that was saved by the keeper. He was in the, the right keeper. place. Exactly. He's, he's getting the into the right positions. His movement is still excellent. It's just that last finishing touch that's there. The header, I can, you know, little criticism. The header, I don't there. mind. It's very difficult. It, it was quite difficult to score from there because even if he did does the right thing and heads it across goal, there was a defender on the line. 
has to get the loop on it properly. I don't blame him for that one. It was the one on one that he missed that was the big one for me. Small margin, he's got to get he's got to get better contact on the header than that, really. As a, as a striker who who you're expecting to get goals from, the ball comes across. He does the right thing. He tries to head it down so that he can you know it bounces up and falls the keeper. The contact isn't good, and and it gives the keeper a chance to push that onto the post. That's what it comes down to. And it's at the moment that's all about body position. That's not lining yourself up correctly for a header. Not that's not getting yourself set when you're one-on-one with the keeper, when that should be a sort of a natural finish for a striker. And then you come into a penalty there again. You you do this all the time. You are our designated penalty taker. You don't set yourself up for it. But it's not really just Marcus's fault on that, because what I want to say is the whole team was not set up properly. They weren't prepared. Little things like Raggett in the game, when he tried to sort of play it back to the keeper and ended up booting it off for a corner. This was oh, a team yeah. that was rattled all along. And the fact is the centre-backs, the goalkeeper, Craig McGivery did fine though, to be fair, and the strikers are the people who are going to take the most flack for it because they're not scoring the goals or preventing them going in. They're the most obvious people on the pitch to watch in that situation. Someone like Tom Naylor thought we had an okay game. Not very good, really. Didn't he misplaced a lot himself. of passes that game. Yeah, a lot of wayward passes. I said to Andy, actually, when we were, when we were watching the game together, I was like, oh, no. Because Tom Naylor picked the ball up and he just drilled it off for a throw-in on his cross-field ball. Mm. You know, the sort of thing last season when I was like, Tom Naylor, do not try the cross-field ball. Pass to someone else. Let them do it. This season, he's been fine with it. But it was very much looking like the team of last season when they were struggling right there across the board. So whilst we'll pick out individual players for this and go through the analysis, I think it's worth saying that they're glaring errors because they're game-breaking errors from Marquez. Their goals scored and same for Rag at the back in the defence. Although we can't talk about individual errors, I've highlighted the fact that you've got Raggett there and Marquez and maybe it comes under too much of a microscope. I'm going to play devil's advocate with myself here because Sean Raggett, I, I need to say this now because the segue works. What are you doing giving away that penalty there, mate? It was awful control. It was just, it was park football. It was dreadful to watch. And that is a player shot quality. Andy, can you take this off me, please? I've been talking for too long. <laughs> I just love the. I'm not going to just name individual players, but Marquis and Raggett. <laughs> I love that. There's nothing even to really analyse, is there, for that. It's not something you can pick out the position of the defenders and how we got caught like with one of the back four playing the striker on side. And there's nothing to analyse with that. There was a ball under very little pressure, Obviously, either didn't get a shout from from anyone that sort of man on shout. Looked unbelievably surprised when a Bristol Rovers player appeared on his shoulder, and then the split second panic and reached out and gave away the penalty. I I don't think there's much more to analyse than that. I'd He's like one of the best centre backs in League One, Andy. I'm not dignifying that with a response, Frederick. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's not according to me that's according to Joe Gamble I know, I know, I know exactly what you're quoting I'm just not even dignifying that with a response we'll come on to Joe Gallon's comments after yeah. the game a bit I, later but I, yeah it was, it was abysmal defending for both the goals and then there were instances where his headers were misplaced he gave the ball away a lot he looked as if he lost his head in the second half and you can argue that that happens to certain players there are a couple of examples of of similar performances where it's been obvious that someone has just psychologically there 
they're still being affected by something that's happened previously. The obvious example of that, and I'm not saying this is the same ballpark, but the obvious example of that is Drew Talbot against Oldham um, a few seasons ago. And I'm, this Drew is not Talbot. the same. This is not the same ballpark as that, but because of a combination of factors, he lost his head in that game and didn't play for Pompey again. And like I say, this is not on the same level. But you could see in the second half the examples you've given about yeah headers being misplaced, about that back pass going out for a corner, about. 20 yards wide and 10 yards wide uh, 10 yards over the goal and then obviously yeah just when when things start going wrong it seems to be a very slippery slope with Sean Raggett to get his composure back when he's confident he's a good center back very good center back it, it, it that explains why his ceiling is in the league one center half a very Quite good possibly. league one center half in my opinion but every time this happens, you look at it going more and more and going, it, it, are his streaks of good defending worth it? I've got stats for later on. but I'm, I'm looking forward to them, Freddie. I'm excited at the thought <sighs> of it. You always sound it, excited for them, what, Andy, don't worry. Yeah. Um, Hugh, what I'd say is, like going back to that podcast we did with Jonty a while ago and we were discussing centre-backs and there's got to be a soundbite of it somewhere where uh, I said that he's going to be a decent defender and this isn't an I told you so thing this is just a this was predictable thing there's where where um he's, he's going to be a solid enough defender but over the course of the season I said he's going to cost us points and I yeah, stand yeah. by that Andy told you so no it's very much not what I'm saying but I think it was <laughs> I, my point is it's predictable and avoidable and we haven't predicted it and we haven't avoided it and that frustrates me and the fact that if we avoid if we if we miss out on um playoffs that we miss out on automatics because of something that so many people saw coming that's going to be grossly frustrating is it, it's not unlucky then is it no it's not bad luck we go on about small margins and i'm sure we will if we miss out by a point or point three of a point per game or whatever we'll say oh it was small margins through the season if we hadn't conceded this penalty then or if the referee had not given offside then or if blah 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 but that isn't a small margin to me that isn't. If we've predicted it, it's not a small margin. No, and we also, we know that Raggett tends to have a few games and when he loses it, he's lost it. And I think in this game, it was one of those games, as as Freddie said, League One centre-back, fair enough. But he, he was losing things that he usually dominates. Aerial, aerial duels, things yeah, like that. Was, that, that was, that's his bread and butter. That's what worried me more. If it was, uh, We've seen many games where, where he just gets torched by a striker going past him on the floor. Fine. Because that's not where his strength is, and you need someone to cover him for that. Just getting to that second goal, it's a beautiful assist there from Bolton. He, he knows where the striker is. He, get, he gets his head up. He provides the flick on. I would have thought if I didn't know Pompey, I'd be like, right, match fixing in League One, right there. He plays it through the last little flick on. Boys, I'm a little bit stressed out about this, but let's be honest, yeah, Freddie. Is there anything we can take from that goal, the second goal that they can learn from at least? Oh, it was it was just so much of a defensive error though. It, it, it was one of those things. How, how often is the, is it a backwards header across your own penalty area to a striker who's on his own? You're not. You're just not taught how to do that. <laughs> yeah, but why um, is the striker on his own, Freddie? Good point. I have I had no idea where Charlie Daniels was. Rag- that, well, that. Rag- no, the striker the striker's on his own because Raggett's lost his man. Because when the ball comes in, Raggett misjudges the flight of the ball, and pro- I, by the looks of it, to me, it looks like he thinks it's going over. Bolton's head and their player's head so he can clear it from behind them so he misjudges the flight of the ball goes towards the ball gets pulled towards the middle of the penalty box 
leaving um, the Bristol uh, Bristol Rovers player free at the far post. So, I mean, when Bolton's just trying to get anything on the ball when it's coming in, I I don't think this goal is a Bolton mistake. This is a for me, this is a ragged being sort of going out of position and, and being pulled towards the ball, ball rather than staying with his man, for me. I, th- I think that's fair enough. And if, when you consider with Raggett as well, he almost looks like he's being told to defend zonally there, which is not the case. Raggett's always very tight to his man, usually a little bit dodgily. I'm always sort of like, look, mate, don't it, give away it, He looks a bit strange when he's man marking, but it's mostly you, mostly really good. No, it is. and But, you know, you always think he's very physical. He gets very tight to his man. He, he manages to not give away too many penalties. Oi, oi. But the, but the point really is, is that both of them didn't look like they had the communication going at the back at all. Yeah, it's a, a fair comment, I think. And I don't even know if that is communication, though. That's that Raggett not staying with his man and, and going in behind and sort of getting drawn towards the ball that Bolton's going for. Like, I don't know if that is communication. That's just situational awareness for me. I, that's, not, that's not on Bolton to to communicate to Raggett in a split second that, you know, he's he's got the trajectory of the ball covered and he's going to get something on it. That's not on Bolton. Raggett's the one behind the play with a complete field of view. So the ball is coming in from in front of him towards the near post in front of him. He's got that complete clear field of view. He is the one with all the information. Whereas Bolton is the one who could only see the ball coming in in front of him. He can't see behind him. It's like in cricket. If you hit the ball behind square the non-striker calls for the run because they've got I know you're snoozing at the cricket reference but if the ball goes behind square the non-striker calls because they've got a better field of vision as to what's going on that the batsman who's just hit the ball can't see as well it's the same thing Raggett had the vision to to make that decision it's not on Bolton yeah, I think that's fair enough Andy yeah I'm, I'm convinced I'm convinced from your from your chat there there's not really much more I can add to this. So unless you're going to add anything else to it, boys, I'm going to move on to what everyone else has got to say because let's be honest, it's more interesting than what we've got to say. So, all right, all of you have messaged in. We put out some questions after the lacklustre performance versus Bristol Rivers, and that's me being polite. What would you change for the game versus Blackpool? Now, we put the question out there. A lot of you guys messaged in, so we're going to work our way through them. So uh, the Pompey Tweeter AV messaged in, and thanks, mate. He says, get Jack back in with Raggett. Can't drop Raggett in brackets just because he's been very good for the season. Drop Marquez. He can't miss that many chances. Give Hawula a chance. We created loads. I did like Byers in front of Cannon and Naylor. It's just that they both played awful. On paper, that game, we did create loads. If you want me to go on to that first. 2.86xg uh, in that game for Portsmouth. Very good. Very good. XG um, Claxon. Yeah. Uh, yes. How, how many how many games is John Marcus going to miss those chances? Out, out of that, Marcus had 1.86 XG with the penalty. Without it, it's 1.1, which is almost double what he usually has on average per 90 minutes. <laughs> I muted but, for that, but we actually had party poppers for the XG. They were ready. Now my room stinks. Oh God! Well, again, we talked about it earlier. Do you stick or twist? And it's incredibly hard. I think if you're just going one up front, I think you still stick with Marquis, even though statistically this this season for players, he's one of the most wasteful with his XG. He's got a differential of three XG compared to how many goals he's scored. He scored 12 
His XG for uh, in totals over 15. The only player that's worse than that is Brandon Hadlin, who apparently should have scored 12 goals this season, which is a bit weird. But I think he's done everything else right apart from finish. If Portsmouth play in the 4-4-2 high press, he's excellent for that. Closes down defenders. And when Portsmouth has a possession, his running off the ball is really good. Gets into position every time, which I I don't think we've seen enough of Jordy Hewler to think he would do. Hewler's very good at hanging off the last defender or running and getting into those positions, but the management doesn't trust him. Ellis Harrison certainly doesn't get into the positions that John Marcus does. He came on and was ineffectual throughout this entire game. And yeah, so <laughs> a tough one. I think I would keep John Marcus and just hope that differential uh, subsides. <laughs> And he's distracting us by pointing out there's no paper in his party pockets. I'm raging. What the hell is that? There was like a massive bang. I was like, where's God? Raging. (laughs) Sorry, boys. Um, Liam messaged in. He says, would like to see Watmore back in the side. I think Hawula's situation is getting a bit silly now. What was the point in a contract extension if he's not going to play? 4-4-2, would like to see Harness up front again. So, Freddie, I'm going to put that out to you. First of all, we'll come on to Hawula, who is the only substitute not used apart from the goalkeeper ward in the game which says a lot in my opinion when, you, when you're looking for a goal and you don't bring the striker off the bench fair play to Harvey White but bringing him on at that stage of the game instead of bringing on Jordi Hawula and just chucking another striker up front seems absolute madness to me that's the issues I've got with that but Harness up front we, that sort of ties into me a little bit with Marquis we've seen Harness play with Marquis I think he looked very good Harness always looks better when he's playing down the middle, in my opinion. You know, I've rattled on about that on the podcast. We saw it a little bit against Bristol Rovers. Nicolaisen comes in. He steps in. He takes it past a couple of players and plays a nice tidy pass to Marcus Harness, who puts a shot on goal. That's right, on target as well. Keeper makes a good save, pushes it onto the post. Another day that goes in. Is Marcus Harness the answer to the striker crisis up front for Portsmouth? Potentially. I would say he's more of an option than Harrison is. And I'm sorry, I did get the XG wrong. It was 2.68 for Portsmouth. Excuse me. Apologies. I'm sure you're all very annoyed at that. You had one job, Freddie. Yes, I know. Read from a stats platform that you paid for. (laughs) But I do like Marcus Harness up front. And you still want Williams playing because he he doesn't deserve to be dropped. He's played exceptionally well on the right-hand side. And that dynam- the dynamism of, the, of that front four when they're all together like that is excellent. And I do think Jordi Hula can be that. He fits the profile of the sort of player who would fit with that front four when they're on the high press. They're forcing the mistakes. They're playing the through balls and it's all going really well. So I don't see why Hula hasn't got a chance. But I prefer Marcus Harness to Hula simply because he's more of a complete player, in my opinion. Andy, can you play harness up front with Hula? Yep. Yeah. yeah <laughs> um, I think, no, I do think that Hula, as much, I would like to see him get given a run in the side. I've not found anyone that wouldn't. I do think that he's going to have pressure built on him as, you know, one of those players. That everyone gets, everyone becomes a much better player when they're not getting any game time. We've seen it repeatedly and it's it's not just a Portsmouth thing, it's every football club. If you're not playing, you get eulogised as sort of the second coming and it, it puts pressure on you when you do get on. Having said that, yeah, I, it's hard to argue against the fact that he's 
you know, earned the right to have some League One game time. The, the majority of his minutes have been in cup games and against, with all due respect, lesser opposition. So I don't see any issue with blooding him in the first team against the League One League One opposition, unless something's being seen in training that suggests he isn't, you know, is missing that cutting edge. We're not privy to that information. But I, I don't see how it could be less successful than last night. I, that's that's my kind of point of reference. I you don't have to see try something could, now, don't you? Yeah, I don't see how you could include Hawula in the next game and say, "Oh well, but you know, we were even worse at taking our chances than we were against Bristol Rovers when when we got one on ones being you know not taken, penalties being missed." It, it's very difficult to see how it could actually be a worse option. <laughs> I'm going to say though, that putting this out there, that if you play Hawula up front with Harness, you better be getting on the ball and passing it forward. If you're going to decide to get the ball. Like Ports of Dibney, ran out of options and try and punt it long to um, Hawula. Punt it to the wide areas, especially. Yeah, and Harness or whoever's running those channels up front, it's not going to work. And Hawula's yeah, not made for that at all. And Harness definitely isn't made for a role where you just loft the ball up to him, bypassing the midfield. So it's going to be a thing that if they're going to go and start with Hawula, playing with Harness, playing with whoever, if you don't play a target man, it's not going to work playing the ball up long to him. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's where, for, for me, we really missed Jacobs last night. I think Jacobs and Byers, um, Jacobs has shown himself to be able to pick some lovely through balls, like over the top and on mm. the ground. And Byers showed last night that he's got that vision and the ability to execute that vision. I think if you have Jacobs, Byers and another, so Jacobs, Byers, Williams, Jacobs, Byers, uh, Curtis at a push, although I'm not sure how that would really work, but Jacobs, Byers, Williams... And then you could have Harness playing up top with Marquis, Huula, whoever. I think that could be quite a nice combination. Or even Huula buys Jacobs, if that would work. I know they both prefer playing on the left, but Huula buys Jacobs, if you're playing that sort of 4 3 3. Yeah, then potentially there is some scope there for, for the vision and the execution on the ground. But like you say, Hugh, if, if that vision isn't executed and they sort of resort to the slightly panicky tactics that's just that that formation is not going to work in the slightest talking about george bias sam stone pompey news now messages in and he says bias has to start again he was the only bright spark yesterday has exceptional vision and ability on the ball could be influential if given a run in the side clearly a level above dan knight messaged afterwards and says cannon has been a passenger over the last month started alongside Naylor and revert back to two up top now i don't think cannon's been a passenger I don't think that's fair. I think that the season's gone on and he's not played a whole season, to be fair, for us. This is his first time playing a full season for us and he's been one of the influential main starts in the team. He looks a little bit tired, but then a lot of the team did as well. However, if we're going to play a 4-4-2, and so far that seems to be what most people are saying, I would like to see Byers come into the middle of the pitch and play with Tom Naylor. And that involves Tom getting the ball, picking it up and playing it to Byers, who then can distribute the ball forward. The ball needs to be played through the midfield, in my opinion. And then we can actually play with attacking players up front and not have to start. If we're going to go with two up front, with someone like Harrison who can hold the ball up, we need to play the ball on the floor. And for me, Byers coming into the centre midfield in a 4-4-2 does that. I think you said it there. I think we say this about a lot of players. Curtis, for example. Harness, for example. I think with Andy Cannon, it's just a classic case of he needs a rest. He needs one or two games just to completely reset himself. 
it rests not just physically, mentally, especially since this is his first season where he's starting regularly at that age. And I think Byers arguably is, uh, has earned his spot in the in the middle of a four four two. He's definitely got the technical ability to do it. And from what from what I saw in that game, he has the capability to move off the ball as much as Cannon does. So he can fill in that role as well and cover everything defensively, especially if the fullbacks help him in the right scenario. So I think in terms of shape, that's what I would do. You're at home against the mid-table side. You have to dictate the, dictate the play because Blackpool can just sit on the counter in a 4-3-3 and do what they're good at if they wanted. And with a 4-4-2, Portsmouth look more dangerous. So that's what I would go with. I think calling Cannon the passenger is harsh, isn't it? I, I don't think that's... A completely fair reflection. I wouldn't go as far as to say passenger, no. I just no, think it's agree. just a bit awful. Oh, slightly fatigued, but I mean, the first goal last night wouldn't have happened without him um, against Bristol Rovers, and he still does contribute. It just maybe isn't as strikingly obvious as when he's got a bit more energy in his legs because he is one of those players that has an impact on the game by running at the defence. So I think it probably is slightly more obvious when he's fatigued than someone in a slightly more get the ball and ping it around kind of role. It's, it's more overt when it's um, when it's a player. Well, it's like not Cannon. as obvious when he's not picking through balls through past four players every game as well. James Taylor messages in. He says, Bolton was unfairly pulled off versus Rovers. It should have been Raggett. It seems that if Rags isn't playing well with Jack, he really struggles. I'd stick Jack back in with him to continue the partnership and bring Harness in for Cannon as he looks tired. Back to the 4-4-2 slash 4-4-1-1. Yeah, I think it's it's a f- possibly a fair comment about Bolton at being slightly harsh pulling him off. I guess that if you if you look at the alternative there, you have a centre back pairing of Nicolaisen and Bolton, and which is completely untested. I think un- the manager yeah, just thought look, we, he just thought look, Raggett started pretty much near every game. We're going with the stable face at the back four, they probably thought even though he's looked shaky. Probably yeah, thought he could pull it together. Second half, get Nicolaisen out there. They played together. Looked good against Hull when they played together as a partnership. You know, that's a good team they played against as well. Get that in there. It didn't work. So maybe a bit unfortunate on Bolton, but he was the unknown question mark, I suppose, in that partnership. So you can kind of see why that happened. Uh, Tom Jeffries messaged in. He said, I can't see it happening. And I know inconsistency is the price we pay for being in League One. But can we please give Marcos a game or two on the bench and see what starting two up with real pace up top would do? We're not finishing the chances we create at the moment, so what's the risk? When he says two players with pace, I'm thinking Hawula and Harness. I, I can't. I, I, think, can't. I think that's what he means. Even though well, I don't think Marcus is slow by any means, because he got into the right. If he was slow, he wouldn't have got into the right positions in the last game. He just didn't. Yeah. He couldn't finish his dinner. Yeah, that's exactly it, mate. Yeah, yeah. I think Marcus's positioning and his 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 knowing when to run actually usually puts him through on goal, and he's quick enough with enough time there. He get, gives himself enough time to finish usually. So he's not lightning, but his movement off the ball means that he gets into good positions, and he's not slow enough to be caught. But no, I think that's fine. We've, we spoke about that. And I'll also tell you another thing: John Marcus has got four assists this season as well. He's not just the goal scorer. He do, he does so much off the ball. It's just easy for people sometimes to look at it and go, oh, shit, the striker's not scoring. Oh, we don't have the striker who scored 25 goals four seasons ago who spent. Yeah. It's a shame. I wouldn't blame the manager if, if he wanted to rotate. I just don't see him rotating it. I think Marquis stays gets a spot with another person up front. It's a bit of a go-to easy critique, isn't it? And I'm not even saying it's completely wrong. 
Um, I think there's an argument to be made for it, but I think it is a very simple, you know, let's look at the shallow problems. Oh, Marquis hasn't scored. Let's focus in on that. Whereas, I th- yeah, I think last night there were larger issues, even though there were a couple of very obvious, uh, a very cu- a couple of very obvious individual issues. There, there were a, there was sort of a bigger picture that still was, you know, well under par, rather than the individual mistakes going forward and at the back. I think the last thing I'll say on the Marquis stuff is the differential in his goals next year is worrying. But if in a few games it, that that go that go, if it breaks even in the next few games, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Russell Humphrey so is in. He says buyers only plus. Cannon looks shattered and Marquis needs a break. Yes, Raggett had a mare, but he's been pretty solid until then. I would take out Bolton, Daniels, Cannon, and Marquis and bring in Watmore, Brown, Harness, and Huwula in a 4-4-2. Willow looks tired, if only Jacobs is fit. Now, we've been through that as well. The one thing I want to focus in on now is Daniels. Do you take Daniels out and put, and put Brown in? I mean, Brown did all right. I didn't think he was mind-blowing. He's more defensively reliable, in my opinion. I don't know where Daniels was in that back four. It was back four as a whole was disjointed, I thought, in that game. Yeah, I, I think mean, sometimes Daniels uh, actually relies on being covered a little bit. You see, Raggett was doing very well in covering yeah. Daniels when he went forward. Mm. Naylor does a similar thing as well. And when he hasn't got that defensive cover, because Raggett was off his game completely, his defensive liabilities were exposed. And when we looked and we spoke, sorry, when we spoke to the guys from the Salab cast, the Shrewsbury podcast, they said to us that, you know, he's kind of slow and, you, you know, you better have someone going in to, to sort of cover him in that sense. So I think the centre-backs being off their game, Naylor not being particularly good in this game as well, really exposed the weaknesses that Daniels brings to the team. I think right. I think with that with that position, I think it's very flexible for Portsmouth. They could, it depends on how they play. They can rotate it however they like. So if they're worried about the defence shipping goals, which is probably arguably the main problem, but Portsmouth are top goal scorers in the league with 45 goals. The offence isn't the problem a lot of the time. The, def- the defence is, for me... So if they want to go a bit more stable and put Lee Brown at left back, I wouldn't blame them. Mine Daniels messages in. He says a good team at isolated statement victories, but not good enough at the bread and butter ones. I mean, I think you need to be consistent enough over a whole season if you want automatic promotion. I suppose that's a fair comment. It's the frustration it, of the losing the key game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I think that's fair enough, Martin. Finley messages in. He says, think most people were happy with the lineup before the game. Do we think Hawila warrants a start? Lots of fans are calling for it. Yeah, I think most people have been saying that, Finley. I think a lot of people do want Hawila to start. I would like him to start in the next game. Um, give it a go. Why not? Let's just let's just mix it up against Blackpool, who are playing without their best centre-back, or one of their best centre-backs, as we'll come on to discuss later. All right, let's just quick take a break in that and talk about what Joe Gallon said after the game. <laughs> he was talking to John T, Hampshire Live. Friend of the show, if you're on here, check his stuff out. If you don't really follow him. The triple substitution at halftime. Was that purely tactical or were there some injury concerns in there at all? Reading this out from uh, Hampshire Live, he says, there were no injury concerns. I was on the phone to Kenny and he felt these were the best changes that needed to be made. I thought it was a strong second half performance. And if we're going to lose, I'm pleased to say that I think we've gone down fighting. And with a little bit more luck, really, there was a blatant penalty, which I hoped you were going to ask me about. We hit the post and there are numerous amounts of crosses. It hadn't gone our way tonight, but I was pretty pleased with the second half performance. 
Joe Gallen, that is a criminal statement. <laughs> I think I've the word never you're looking for. I think more biased in my life. I think the word you're looking for is delusionary. I think I think he's protecting his players, which sometimes you can't blame him for. But that performance in the second half was not good enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the handball that the referee missed, and yeah, do me a favour. I'm sorry. It's but this is the fourth season now. Portsmouth can't complain about luck anymore for why they're not good enough in, in certain games. I'm sorry, they can't. That's what annoyed me in that game. There wasn't the fight there, simply because they instead of playing properly in certain points, they were just, they were just bitching to the referee a lot of the time. Good teams don't do that, in my opinion. No, they don't. But I think it was you could just see what it was. It's human nature. It's frustration. It was boiling over. Everyone was a bit frustrated with everyone else. Blah, blah, blah. And you could just see that come out all over the pitch. And everyone was doing that sort of, you know, I say everyone. Yeah, yeah. You could turn that second half. There are a couple there are a couple of moments where you thought, oh, if it went one way, an individual could have scored. I I, I think that harness got harness was unlucky not to score that goal that was tipped onto the post. And you think, oh, that individual thing could maybe put Portsmouth back into the game, but it was too late. And there were long periods of that second half where it didn't do anything. Interesting enough as well, uh, to follow on from that, Jake Allen also mentioned, and I'm interested to hear your take on this, that Sean Raggett's one of the best centre-backs in League One. I don't know if Freddie's got the quote directly in front of him. Why I, I do, I've got it here. I'll fire over to you, mate. <clears throat> right, the question that John said was, Sean Raggett struggled, particularly tonight, didn't he? Joe Gunn's response, I think Sean Raggett is having an outstanding season. He really is. And I don't think that there are too many better centre-backs than Sean Raggett. He's having an outstanding season, and we'll good and we'll continue to have one because he has such good character. He'll know he made a, made an error tonight, and that's all right. Um, I wouldn't go as far as say he's one of the best centre halves in League One. I'd say he's a very good centre half. You could look at some of his defensive stats: his nine point five two aerial duels per ninety with a sixty seven percent win rate. That's very good. His defensive duels slightly lower, but bear in mind he started pretty much every game for Portsmouth this season. So defensive duels win rates are usually a bit smaller of 4.73 per 90 with 69% win rate. Yeah, you could look at those and say, well, that's top tier for this division. But then I'll rattle off some names of centre-halves and you can tell me if he's better. Is he a better centre-half than Jacob Greaves from Hull City? I don't think so. Is he a better centre-half than Charlie Moore-Grew at Fleetwood? Arguable. And I could go on and name some more, but I can't be bothered. Can't be it's bothered, Fred. Inspirational on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> Not after that. Bored, hundredth, hundredth episode. Right, I'll go Freddy. through more names. I've got more names. If you sure, can Freddy. Is he a better centre-half than Ethan, Ethan Ebanks-Lendl from Shrewsbury? No. No. Is he a better centre-half than his teammate, Aaron Pierre from Shrewsbury? No. Hugh, you're getting the hang of this. This is like being, <laughs> a pantomime. I do feel like I'm passing judgment with the hammer, though. And is, no. he a better, is, he a, is he a better centre-half than... This is my last one. Mark Beavers from Peter. Yeah, shit. Overrated. Yeah, well, what are you going to say if we say yes, Freddie? What's your follow-up? <laughs> He's got better aerial jewels than Racket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we, we can't move. He hasn't got Raggett's silky. Paper, so. Hasn't got Raggett's silky moves though. He hasn't, oh. hasn't got his positioning and his. How uh, many of those? How many of those centre backs have you ever seen perform a Cruyff turn, Freddie? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come on, boys. <laughs> no, oh. uh, 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 
I'm not going to be so harsh and shoulder. I get everybody has games like that that they sort of they're awful. But sometimes you do look at them and go, is it worth it? That's the last question I'll put to you. Is it worth him playing all those games in a row if every seven games he becomes a deer in the middle of a road? <laughs> yes. <it's laughs> I have no idea what to say to that, Fred. I really don't. And building on this sort of uncertainty that we're going on about this, what I'm going to do now is we're going to talk to Dan from the Up the Mighty Pool podcast. We're going to talk about the Blackpool game up and coming, what he thinks about it from a Blackpool point of view. Give us a little breather on this and come back to it because we said, what would your Pompey starting 11 be against Blackpool? We'll get to that. But first, we'll talk to Dan from the Up the Mighty Pool podcast and find out what Blackpool is saying. All right. So I'm here with Dan from Up the Mighty Pool podcast. And Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Cheers, Hugh. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. How are we doing, boys? Are we all good? We're not too bad. No, that's a fucking lie, mate. We're awful after that Bristol Rovers game. It was an awful performance. And it must be something the Blackpool fans got a lot to see. Yeah. Uh, recently with us, we've been a bit hit and miss. Uh, we scraped a 1-0 win against Rochdale. So it looks like we're in for a great game on Saturday. <laughs> Uh, why do you think you've been hit and miss this season everything uh, injuries Covid frozen pitch Burton Albion not want, wanting to play us not, fan, not for, up for a game travelled all the way touched part of the pitch said it was too frozen got the game called off um, so we didn't play them that got rescheduled obviously we've had uh, Covid but I don't think we've ever actually called off for Covid it's always been other teams like Rochdale Sunderland um, so we've been a bit hit and miss in that, in that sense and also we just lack of consistency in games so we've not played for ages before last night yeah just looking at your results there's a lot of inconsistency there because as you say you've you scraped that 1-0 win against Rochdale who in theory not whipping boys but you'd expect a decent result against them really on like an average day and then yeah losing to Ipswich who with all due respect are pretty average at the moment they're going through a pretty bad run of form but then you've got a 5-0 away win against Wigan which Hull have obviously just kind of story topped you there, but that as a standalone, that's like really, really inconsistent in terms of the results. Is that is that mostly due to player rotation or is it the same 11 that's just struggling to find consistency? Player rotation, I'd say. Uh, with the with the 5 0 win, we were we had different players in, completely different players to our starting 11. So that was a huge result, both in the sense that in terms of our squad depth and I think how poor maybe Wigan were, but we also actually just it was about time we were due one of those games and we started finishing our chances because we make so many but just seem to not be able to put them away. In terms of player rotation, Critchley's been doing that a lot and he's been doing that with the formation too because he likes to play off the opposition. So he's been looking at the opposition instead of saying, right, this is 4-4-2, this is our best formation, we're going to go with this every week. He'll look at the opposition, he'll try and sort of nullify their strengths. So we obviously change our formation quite a bit. In terms of injuries, we've had... Our sort of main star, CJ Hamilton, has been injured with a hamstring injury. He's been gone for a long time. Then we had Gary Medine injured for a while too. We've had our centre-backs, three of them, I think, have been injured now. Two with ha- two with hamstrings, one got done last night. So we've just been having a lot of makeshift sort of defensive um, changes, to be honest. And that's where the majority of the issues are. But we tend to be pretty solid. So we've had a lot of clean sheets at home. And we're doing well in terms of stopping other teams attacking, like Rochdale. I know have notched a few goals quite against quite a lot of people, so we thought it'd be quite a high-scoring game. Defensive-wise, it's been good. It's just the other end, we seem to lack the sort of goal threat. 
does it frustrate you that sorry Hugh, does it frustrate you that you're you're lining up to negate other teams rather than lining up playing to your own strengths because we found that in a couple of games where we've adjusted our team's formation while playing at home and rather than making other teams adapt to way we want to play we've adapted and sort of taken that reactive rather than a proactive role is that frustrating for you if you're doing it a lot or are you quite happy with just doing what needs to be done to negate other teams it's frustrating because when we do it we don't seem to win <laughs> so we're, we're being reactive quote quotation marks and uh and it's not working we'd be like we're, we're trying to nullify and stop them from playing and we seem to be getting beat when we do that but when we tend to go with uh, 442 and players know what they're doing we seem to be a lot stronger and that's been I've not been too fussed about it to be honest I've been a bit patient I'll let Critchley decide obviously he's got more experience than I am so what do I know but uh, that's been the main irritation I'd say of our fan base a lot of people have been complaining about the uh, this reactiveness this change in the formation only going with one up top when we seem to struggle as it is with two so yeah there's been a lot of um, a lot of hoo-ha about that it's interesting because it sounds like to me, and we, when we spoke about this before, Dan, at the last time we played you guys, we were talking about how the systems really matched up against each other and how it's going to be a who can work the system better sort of scenario. And you guys came out on top quite easily. I think you were quicker. We really struggled with your pace. Our fullbacks looked a bit slow. We were pinned in our own in our own end. Is there anything that has changed in that time which makes Pompey fans, well, gives them a bit of hope that it will go down differently this time? Uh, I'd just say defensive-wise, probably, because obviously Marvin Ekpateta has been an absolute standout at the back. He's been our solid, consistent performer, gets picked every game, always on the team sheet, probably one of the first names, if not the first. We've lost him last night, uh, last night, so depending on how serious that is, it seems to be quite serious. We're going to have a makeshift pairing. Maybe it's going to be Dan Ballard and Jordan Thornley. He, he's been pretty solid, but he's got a mistake in him. So whether that gets exploited or not. In terms of midfield, we've got a new signing, Stuart, ex-Lopal, who he's come in, he's done really well, actually. But um, this, this, the gelling, it's the chemistry again. It's like we're starting again in sort of midfield. I don't think last night kind of showed for me we weren't winning the midfield battles. Got quite a few similar players in that area that don't seem to be really understanding what their roles are and trying to do the same role, if you like. So if that gets ironed out before Saturday and we work on that, then um, then yeah, uh, otherwise it's going to be, I'd say the mid, if you win the midfield battles, it could be it could be your game. I was noticed Keshi Anderson wasn't playing in the last game. Is he out the squad? Is he gone? What's going on with him? He's out for the season, unfortunately. I think he did Ooh. his uh, ACL. He's had an operation. He's on crutches. So I don't, I'm not sure he's in the squad at the moment because of the limited numbers that he can have. So he's not going to be available until until next season. <clears throat> what do you think your strength, your strength and weak point will be? Looking at players, if you if you look to your squ- squad now and thought that's the one player you need to step step up for this Portsmouth game, and is there a player who you think might get picked and you're thinking you're not really sure? Great question. Um, I'd normally say our left back position if James Husband's playing, but he had an absolute storm last night. So he's been he's done really well. Another player that's been a bit inconsistent um, that gets a lot of flack is Ka- is Kakai, Sully Kakai, and he had a, he scored last night. Had another stormer. So to be honest, I wouldn't say there's a weakness as much anymore because it's just who makes the mistake on the night, I suppose. And I, I mentioned Jonah Thornley. He's potentially a little bit of a worry, but he's been doing well recently as well. Yeah. So it just depends who who makes the mistake. I can't really say in terms of. Uh, recently, who who I think will make make one or not in terms of strengths, 
we've been missing Gary Medina a lot. So whether if he's back, it'll be a huge boost. If he's not, then we'll probably go with Jerry Yates, who's been great, work, great work, or some um, Ellis Sims from Everton. But he's he made an impact against Wigan, but he's yet he didn't really make one last night. So he needs to sort of step it up, I think, uh, Ellis Sims. Yeah, it's a strange one because if you look at us tactically, both of our teams are generally quite good on the counter attack. They're quite good when possession teams sort of overcommit players. And then you've got those quick players on the breakout. And we're very similar that we can, we can attack on the breakout in the same sort of way. So is this going to be a strategic battle of the counter-attack where a chess match almost, where both teams are waiting for the other team to overcommit, which ends in a ball draw stalemate or potentially a one nil, where, I don't know, one of the players from either team breaks free in and gets a goal? Yeah, I think so. I think we do like to play on the counter, but I, ju- I guess it just it's just how it how it how it comes about. Like for some reason, we seem to start games well now, which was an issue last time, and then just fall away in the second half. So it's just a, I think the first goal matters really. I think if if you get the first goal, we can't seem at all to ever have that sort of spirit and that comeback to really. Bring bring the game towards. So if you go one nil up, I'd, I'd say it's your it's your game um, because we just can't seem to uh, come back from a deficit. If we score, it probably could still be your game because we we can concede. But we'll, I don't know. We'll be in a we'll be in a, a lot of, a lot more of a stronger position if we do score first. That's for sure. I mean, do you think the, do you think the ability to get back in games is just due to the rotation like you've mentioned, with so many players getting injured, different team sheet and tactical shape every week. Potentially, yeah. I'm trying. I'm trying to put my finger on it myself. To be honest, it could be due to like lack of lack of consistency in terms of playing, but also not f- fully familiar um, with all the changes that are being made. I think in the past as well, Critch has been giving us some stick as well for his substitutions. So sometimes he's made a few questionable substitutions where they haven't really impacted the game. But again, that was in the past. Recently, the substitutions that he's been making have really been well thought through. The players have made an impact. So. Things are improving on that side, I'd say. I think it's just, it's a confidence thing with Blackpool. And that probably explains why we're not scoring any goals as it is. We just, before we hit the hit the, hit the ball, we seem to not have a really think it's ever going to go in. So I think once we actually think we're a team that's going to actually go somewhere and start playing with some confidence, then we'll start picking up points and picking up goals and, and being able to come back from those deficits. So what would constitute a successful season for you now then? Because you're currently 14th in the table you're sort of 12-ish points of relegation by the look of it and about 12 points away from the playoffs. So about as mid-table as it gets, really. Mm. What would be a successful season? Do you realistically think playoff and relegation are both out the window so you're kind of done? Or Absolutely not, Andy. I'm going to take this first. It's promotion. Um, I've got a 50-1 to 1 bet on Blackpool still. Outstanding. And, uh, <laughs> me, I'm looking to see you guys sneak into the playoffs and go, go the whole way. So, uh, Dan, no pressure. What are your thoughts? I mean, I'd love to. We've got we've got a few games in hand, so if it's going to happen, it needs to happen now, not next week, not the week after this game. It needs to happen now. We scraped a one 0 win last night. We've, we're learning how to win ugly. That needs to keep happening, and we need to go on a run. Otherwise, we're out of it. We've got a few games in hand, like I said. So I think if we win the next, we get to forty. I think it's like twenty-eight games. We get to forty points, which will put put us just outside the playoffs. So it's not without question, but that needs to happen. In, in terms of my personal realism. I don't think we're going to get promoted this year. I think uh, I think I said about 10th, I think we'll finish. Solid. But I mean, to be fair, you guys are on what I like to call a progressive rebuild at the moment. 
I mean, you've, you know, you've had all this sort of turnover with the club and getting it all back and et cetera. You've had some, you know, you've got a new manager come in. I think this is the season to get mid-table, isn't it really, Dan? And then next season, look towards the playoffs. Yeah, I think we were disappointed last year, obviously. The season got ended uh, early anyway, and we ended up finishing mid-table. So anything above last season with the rebuild is a positive, in my opinion. I do feel like if the season had carried on and we didn't get the points per game, we would have been near close to relegation with Grayson, to be honest. Had he, or we were, I suppose he was sacked, wasn't he? Yeah, was he that bad been. at that time? I, I do remember going to um, Bluefield Road away. It was a rough game. And I could see I could see what just the tactical setup, what Blackpool were doing. It was very in-your-face, very aggressive. They just peter off in the end completely last season. We just had one uh, one one outlet, which was get it to the wing, get it to Feeney, cross it in, get Nangela to head it in. And that was that was our one route option. We spoke to Jay Spearing the other week, actually, and he was saying the similar, that it was all great until Christmas. He brought some players in, tried to change it a bit. I don't know why they tried to change it, but... Um, Teams found us out, or things weren't working, and we just started to go on a horrible losing run. It wasn't even drawing games; it was just losing after like, loss after loss. And at one point, we were just like the football we were playing was just so boring and dinosaur. And we just thought, oh, get rid of get rid of Grayson. So that's what we did. Obviously, put Critchley in, had a huge turnover, seventeen players, and then even some of those we can see haven't really worked out now, and a few of them have gone in January. So it's like even that process it's not going to be perfect every time when you're getting in so many players. So like you said, yeah, I totally agree. Rebuilding season, just get the consistency of these, because a lot of them are League Two players, so get them adapted well, which a lot of them are now, to League One football, and then get them all used to each other and let's see what can happen next season in my, in my head. But I'll probably get slated for saying that because the season's not over yet and we could still make the playoffs. So. <laughs> well, you don't have to worry about Grayson anymore. He's, a, he's a, a small village outside of Blackpool now, so he should be all right. Is that where he was sent by the Blackpool fans? <laughs> Yeah, bizarre one, isn't it? Uh, I think Pilly's run out of money, so they just pick pick who you can get, really. And you, and <laughs> uh... That's very next Pompey manager. No, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. <laughs> Please don't. Andy's face. Andy's face. Please don't. <laughs> he just gave me the stern look and the shake of the head. Then just like, don't start. <laughs> All right, lads. Um, I'll be honest, Dan. This is a, an interesting time of the season. We could have gone second in the last game if we had managed to beat Bristol Rovers. Unfortunately, we didn't. But it's not the loss; it's the manner of the loss which was particularly worrying for Pompey fans. We looked pretty shaky in all areas of the pitch. Mistakes, calamities, all that kind of malarkey. It was it was pretty poor. So usually I'd come to you and go, this is what you're looking to face. You know, this is how we're setting up. I don't think there's a real clear answer for who will play and how we'll play. So it's an interesting point, Hugh, like, is that what Dan said about Blackpool setting up reactively to nullify the opposition team. Mm. If we don't time. know if we don't know whether <laughs> we're playing four two three one or four four two. I mean, how are they going to predict to like and, and name a lineup? based on the formation when we don't actually have a clue. No, and Pompey fans are also debating between themselves what formation is what when we're playing it. So it's, it's all over the shop. And, uh, you know, Joe Gallen, who's our, who stepped in with uh, Kenny Jacket out, is um, famous for not necessarily agreeing that number 10 is a real position, for instance. I know Andrew Moo mentioned that again on the broadcast yesterday. So it's, a, it's an odd one. And I don't think you're going to be able to set up against us to go, let's, let's see how Portsmouth play and try and nullify that. I think it's going to be a case of we're not really sure what's going on with Portsmouth, so we're going to have to play our game. Yeah, yeah. I think potentially take some confidence from what happened last time. 
could well set up in a similar fashion to last time, just based off the previous game. Out of interest, have you what have you seen much of Portsmouth at all in terms of how they play and stuff? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I've not. I've not to be honest. No. Yeah, I've not, obviously, I know you got Marquis up front, and he's a danger, a threat. But you played us. <laughs> Depends what day it is. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say when you played us, he didn't. We, I don't, I don't know if someone just managed to mark him out of the game, but he didn't really seem to turn up. That would be my only sort of knowledge of sort of Portsmouth threats. Uh, who have you got in midfield? That's my who's centre midfield for you guys. That's my main. Um, <clears throat> mainly, if it's either the four two three one or the four four two, you'll have Tom Naylor, the captain. Probably one of our best players. If he's not in the side, it falls to bits. Defensively minded midfielder who likes to go forward, loves to win the tackle. And then you've got Andy Cannon next to him, who's very, very lively, loves to press people. Decent at short passing, not the most creative midfielder in the world, but he does everything. That's quite to harsh, cover Freddie. The ball, I think that's slightly harsh. I think he's pretty creative. I think mm. the last couple of games, less so, but I, d- I think calling him not creative is slightly harsh. No, I think he's creative, but I think if we compare him then, Freddie, are you going to go on to say <clears throat> George Bias, who came in on loan from Swansea, good player, 35, 35 appearances in the championship last season for Swansea, creative midfielder in the game-breaking pass way. You know, so a player who can pick a pass and just lay it through the midfield and the defence. I think there's a difference there on creativity. Cause I Cannon think there's a difference between a proper playmaker like Bias and Cannon. Uh, 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 Cannon's, a, obviously, we've seen, it seem poor sort of midfield be creative enough without a number 10 involved but in the last few games Cannon hasn't been there for me Dan in short basically it'll probably be well the, the normal starting centre mid will be Naylor and Cannon but Byers started the last game and was the only player to really come out of the Bristol Rovers game with any credit um, he linked up pretty well with Marquis in the first half uh, with a couple of really neat little through balls sort of defence cutting through balls and yeah he's the only player that's really come out of that game other than Ryan Williams on the wing. He's the only one that's come out with any credit at all. So uh, it'll be interesting to see who starts in centre mid, really, to be honest. I think he might rest Cannon and play Naylor and Byers, personally. Mm. I think yeah. he'll go back to the 4 4 2 and do that. That's, I think that's, so. That's where it's going to be won, I think, on Saturday, is that centre centre of the park. Because we were pretty poor, poor last night in that area. It needs to be focused and switched on. So, yeah, that's my, my thoughts on that one. All right, let's get to it then. Let's do this, boys. Dan... Score prediction time. It's pretty difficult for you to predict anything because Pompey are unpredictable at this moment in time and Blackpool sound like they're going for an interesting spell, but you've got to do it. You're on the podcast. What's your score prediction? I'm going to say a 1-1 draw. Tune in to why I follow. Get your tenors out, people, because there's a 1-1 draw coming in according to Dan. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be a horrible game. I can tell you now. I can feel it's going to be one of those hot games where you're just like, why? Why did I pay for this? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, Dan actually, you know, was pretty complimentary about Pompey last time and Blackpool went on to dominate us in the game before. So it'll be an interesting one to see if we can learn from those previous mistakes or not. If if we had Marvin, I would be backing us all the way, but a uh, little bit uh, shaken after uh, a few of his absence of last night. Yeah, no, fair enough. Pompey need to be able to score some goals. Blackpool have got a centre-back out. It, it, it's It's got to happen, boys. So we'll see what happens. But Dan, mate, cheers coming on the podcast. Yeah, no problem, boys. Thanks awesome. for having me on. Yeah, cheers, and uh, after this game, remember, get some wins together. Come on. I yeah. haven't got any money. I need it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get on them, boys. <laughs> cheers, mate. All right, thanks, Dan. Cheers, take care. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks, Dan, for coming on the podcast. And boys, Blackpool, that was a good one, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting what he says about 
missing an integral part of the back four. And it's also interesting to come up against a team who don't really know how they're going to, or the fans don't really know how they're going to be lining up against us. Because normally we can pick a formation from the opposition's previous few games. We can talk to someone from one of their podcasts and we kind of know what we're coming up against. So mm-hmm. it's quite interesting to go into the weekend, yeah, not actually having a clue what formation we're lining up against in both management teams and both coaching staff being in the same boat in that respect. I think it gives it an extra twist, but yeah, a, a boring one all wouldn't be a surprising result, would it, based on that chat? No, but yeah. looking, at what, well, looking at what they've done, they've actually got 11 starts I've seen in 4-4-2 and 11 in 4-3-3 and then a couple of scraggly bits and bobs. So I'm actually worried more about the 4-3-3 formation they played against us before if the wide players are playing well. Pompey really struggled against those real further forward wide players. In the 4-4-2, and Dan saying they can't score goals, sounds a bit familiar. Not as concerned if they line up in that formation. So I don't know what you guys think, but for me, that 4-3-3 looked really dangerous. Is that not what the gas used last night, 4-3-3 against us? No, they used 3-5-2. No, they, <coughs> they used three, a 3-5-2 that was more like a five at the back and then just okay. pass it to win-backs and they whipped round to those two strikers. Um Again, it, it reminds me of the Bristol Rovers game to a certain extent because you're asking Portsmouth to control the possession and control the play and dictate the tempo of this game. It's not reactionary, like Andy said earlier. <clears throat> also had to be proactive in how they play and if it, if they turn up like they did against Bristol Rovers, it's not going to happen. This podcast is a proud member of the Fan Hub 100. Football without fans is nothing, so we've partnered with Fan Hub to put fans first. Search Fan Hub app to play your part in the journey. Right, well, that's what Dan had to say. But you guys have messaged in. We said, what would be your Pompey starting 11 against Blackpool on Saturday? Guys, you've all messaged in. Thank you again for doing it. We're going to try and get through as many as possible. I've realised we're at a certain amount of time already. Gav messaged in. Cheers, Gav. And he says he would like to see McGivory, Daniels, Raggett, Watmore, Johnson at the back. Byers on the left. Naylor, Cannon, Williams, Curtis and Harness up front. Now, I'm not... That's an interesting strike partnership up there. I'm not too sure, It's a very interesting strike partnership, actually. I know. I'm not too sure about Byers playing on the left wing. No, I, I, don't, I don't think he's ever played the left. I don't think he's he? a left winger. I think he'd have to play in the middle. You'd have to probably put... Well, it's interesting, because who would you put on the left? You could probably put Williams on the left. Who would you play on the right? Fred? If you're playing Harness and Curtis up front, we haven't really got another left winger, have we? After that, if Jacobs you'd have to play three centre midfielders, wouldn't you? Mm. Yeah, you'd have to. You'd have to play a four-three-three with neither sitting, and then Byers and another centre midfielder like White or yeah, close there. Or if Cannon, you, if you depending on if you want to rest Cannon or not. Let's ignore this for a second though and go Curtis and Harness. Can those two actually work up top together? I would love to see it tried, to be yeah. fair, though, but they've both got the technical quality to it. But oh, we could, we could talk about who are playing up front or in the front four we like. If they don't use them to the best of their ability and don't play the right balls to them, it's a waste of time. Rob Ford messaged in. He said that GIF would be the first name on the sheet. People who haven't seen it, it's a GIF of Jack Watmore. So Rob wants Jack Watmore to come back into the team. Liam messages in. He says, McGivery, Johnson, Watmore, Nicolaisen, Brown... Curtis, Naylor, Byers, Williams, Harness and Hoyler. Double H, Harness and Hoyler up front. I'm feeling it. Andy? Mm. 
Yeah, I don't I don't mind the idea of these at all. I just think it's it would be very unjacket or ungallon like for them to suddenly play two different like a completely new strike partnership. I mean, the, even though Jacket has tried out a number of different combinations with people like Williams Curtis Harness up top, there's been a common denominator in that they've played up top alongside an established striker. And by established, I mean someone like Harrison or Marquis, who's yeah, who's done it repeatedly for Pompey. Whether or not that is the optimal strike partnership is a completely different question. Um, I quite like the idea of yeah, this nice quick attacking on the ground football with two pacey strikers. You know, Byers sat in the middle, just you know, sliding nice little through balls through reverse passes like he did for Marquis in the last game. Um, so yeah, I I quite like the idea of it, but I would be very surprised if we actually see it. JM messages in. He says this is the best option for sure. So, well, let's hope we can do that. A public perspective messages in. He says McGivery, Johnson, Watmore, Nicolais, and Brown, Harness, Naylor, Byers, Car- Curtis, Harrison, and Huila. Harrison Huila. Mm. <clears throat> no, and not Freddy? for me personally. I get why, because you have the target man at the poacher there. But I don't think Harrison's done enough for me to warrant a, a start, to be honest with you. Nicholson at centre-half's interesting. Hasn't played in a while. Looked good when he came on. A couple he of did look good when he came on. Yeah. Crunching tackles last night. Here's mm. what I'm saying. Are we picking players now based on their performances in the last game <laughs> or how they didn't play? And because they're so absent from the game that, you know, mm. the strikers were rubbish in the last game, people are going, I mean, Jordi Huila is Pompey News Now Man of the Match, for instance. Hey, well that's done. How, that's how bad it we're was. Not I, playing. Voted, I voted Byers. It's harsh on Byers, isn't it? <laughs> what? <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was harsh on Byers, considering he was probably the best player on the pitch. I know, but when, when we uh, included Huila in the poll, it was going to be the protest vote, wasn't it? The anti-establishment Ugh. vote, it happened. Um all right, let's go to Stuart Homakoon. He wants to see Big Mac, Johnson, Watmore, Raggett, Daniels, Harness, Byers, Nalia, Williams, Hawula and Marquis. 4-4 fucking 2. <laughs> Which is a Mike Bassett, England manager reference. Anyone else mm. that? Mm. Let's look at the centre-backs then. Do we go back to the tried and tested? Do we go back to the, the Watmore and Raggett combination? I think most we- of the time it does. And also showing faith in a the centre-half then, aren't you? Uh, and that's the centre-half partnership that will be picked. I don't see any change there, really. Can I think we... the only change in the back four they'll pick is probably Brown at left-back. We don't need to tear the tear the whole page up, do we? No, we, we don't. Need... <sighs> I don't think we need to tear, tear it all down, all down because of one horrendous game, even though the form beforehand was shaky and up and down. Yeah, and there is there are some people here who want Nicolaisen and what more... I'll be honest, I'm not against that. Me and Freddie, were, me and Andy, sorry, were having a chat about this during the game. Nicolaisen, if he was on a permanent deal, I'd be looking at him and thinking, with his passing distribution, etc., I think he's probably got a higher ceiling than Raggett has as a defender. I think he's got the ability, the sort the tools, basically, to be a better defender. Oh, almost certainly. Yeah, so if he was a, a permanent player, I'd actually like to see a Nicolaisen want more partnership. But... We've got him potentially to the end of the season. I can't see him signing properly. Um, Michelin won him back. So do you try plug ahead with this Watmore Nicolaisen idea? Because Raggett's had a bad game? 
No, I think I, I still stand by what I said earlier. You don't drop someone based on one bad game. Um, it, it's, I know it's a fickle game, but it's not that fickle. I'd like to see what more come back in. I think that Nicolaisen is there as a as a stand-in, as sort of a first first replacement. I don't think he was signed to be a first choice centre back, and he's looked really good when he's played. Don't get me wrong; like he looked really really solid when he came on last night. But I think you need sort of an experienced head in centre back and and the stable partnership as well. Yeah, yeah, and sort of discounting what was a horror show of a 90 minutes if we're going to be frank about it it was an absolute horror show performance last night from a number of players um that in general they are fairly solid league one players and you have to look like regression to the mean they're gonna you know average out the next few games and move back towards yeah you'd expect them to compensate for that and sort of yeah have their average performances being standard league one level so I, i don't think you make wholesale changes uh, at the back, at least, because this this is the same team that went six games without conceding fairly recently. Yeah. I mean, with a couple of minor exceptions in that back four. Yeah, I, I don't think Portsmouth are a reasonable team defensively, but I do think they're not as good defensively as Joe Galland and Kane Jacket think they are. Personally, looking at the expected goals against difference and the shots on target xG that ratio that McGivery has, which is the highest in the league by a country mile. But <laughs> I think they just got to rely. I, I, I've said this many times. I think they just got to rely on their midfielders and forwards to win games. And if they and if the tactical approach isn't to do that, then they won't be an automatic team. They'll lose in the playoffs again. Adam Dark messages in. He says, "Recall Bryn. Be a, build build a team around him." <sighs> <laughs> he was booked after about twenty minutes against Ipswich in the North <laughs> Town game. I like uh, that he looked like an integral part of that grinding out a nil-nil draw against a pretty terrible Ipswich team. So yeah, why the hell not, Hugh? I mean, why the, the hell chaos to do it? Adam Tungut messages in, and he just says, "Hawula, hawula, 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 hawula." I wonder if he wrote that out, or if he knows about copy and paste shortcut on his keyboard. <laughs> I hope he knows copy and paste, or that would have been a pain in the ass to write out. I hope that was eleven hawulas, but that's that's what he wants to see mm. on the pitch. Nobody it- but hawula. He's he's the name on everybody's lips at the moment, isn't he? I'm not saying this just to be simply because everybody else is saying. I do think he deserves a shout in the team off the bench when he comes on. But I really like. I would love to see Harness up front with Marquis, or even Curtis up front with Marquis when Jacobs is back in. How about this, Freddie? I don't mind this. Sam Wilmot messages in. He says McGivery Johnson, what more Raggett Brown? Mm. Okay, Naylor Byers and Cannon in the three. Harness, Curtis, Hawula in a three up front. I don't trust um, Kane Jacket to tactically fully use a, three, a, a four three three. <laughs> no, but, I really don't. <laughs> no, it, it didn't seem to work. But you would think, wouldn't you? Nailer in the pivot, Byers in Cannon. Yeah, it, everybody was saying Curtis, that. Harness it, it, in that, that midfield three in the centre in theory, would be excellent because you've got everything, haven't you? You've got the defensive-minded midfielder who covers everything and can go forward. You have the traditional playmaker and you have the utility sense midfielder who could do a bit of everything. Sean Raddle messages in. He says, anyone but Hawula. That's it. Hips to pick. I like that. <laughs> I like that, Sean. Love it. Go against, the, go against the flow. Go against the stream. I'm a big fan of that. Dave Bowers says, Man City's dot, dot, dot. 
You want to see the Man City lineup in here? Why not? Well, Huila is ex-Man City, isn't he? Isn't that where he started his career? Don't I've have got, a clue. I, I, you look I've that got, up. I've got a look that up, up now. And we'll, we'll, we'll carry on. Ben Pay meshes in. He says, McGivery, Daniels, Watmore, Raggett, Johnson, Naylor, Cannon, Byers, Curtis, Marquis, Huula. It's getting a bit of love, that one. It's got, I think it's got three or four people have mentioned to play in the three up front. If they yeah, play that well, if they play that 4-3-3 and they played it properly with a, a Andy Cannon in form, pressing people, Byers pressing as well, but you know, getting the ball, Cannon beating a man and laying it through to him, little passes. I think that could be a, an exceptional combination. I think mm. Marcus having Hawula or and Curtis or Harness either side of him would actually work really well if they were actually in that system. I sort of feel that's actually going to turn into a 4 5 1. I think yeah. what's going to happen is both those wide players, Hawula, Curtis, will end up dropping deep. They'll end up playing in a sort of five man, five man midfield, really. Cannon will drop deep alongside Naylor. It will become a double pivot, not just Naylor playing in there. And Byers is looking a little bit lost in a position where he's not a number 10, but he's supposed to be pressing, but actually he's on his own now trying to press. And the striker looks isolated up front. We sound like broken records sometimes, don't don't we, when we talk about tactics. <laughs> we always talk about pressing. Oh, if it, oh, if it, if it wasn't direct football, it would be fine. And I think the only thing we'll say on that is I'll say on that is we're not I'm not I'm not saying it because it's my personal preference of how football should be played. I'm saying it because it gets the most out of the players Portsmouth have. Two seasons ago, when Hawkins was up front in the in the four two three one, yeah, it was it was a bit it was a bit drab, but it was effective and it worked. I Bring love Ollie Hawkins. Hawkins. I, I miss like, Hawkins. Should have done. What a <laughs> nice bloke. Such a nice man. Bring back Ollie Hawkins. Uh, Freddie Webb, that's a hot take. <laughs> is that Freddie saying that Ollie Hawkins is the best striker in League One? That's what I just heard there, Hugh. Can no, we have that no, as a no, that, no, the, uh, no that, that, that was Gabe Sutton who said that. Yeah, yeah. With no irony. Top lad as well. Friend um, of the show. Love, love his work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friend of the show. Um, okay. I think we've gone through enough of these because we're not actually going to get any more. I've looked through the comments and there isn't really much difference now between what we've already said and what we've covered. I've seen about 30 comments saying, new manager, so... <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> I don't think anyone in their right mind now should be thinking about sacking Kenny Jacket as he goes... There's, there's zero point. Disgraceful. I, 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 I saw someone say, tank for Paul Cook. <laughs> for Paul, Paul Cook's not coming here. Get over it, <laughs> I've seen Ipswich fans seeming to think that he'd go to Ipswich. Why would he want to go to Ipswich at the moment? <laughs> obviously, Lam- obviously Lambert's still there, but they've said, get Lambert out, get Cook in. Lambert's like, not going anywhere. They can't afford no, to sack Lambert. Like <laughs> they four years can't. left of a deal. <laughs> Lambert, the Lambert thing is hilarious. Obviously oh, mate, I love it. Involved with Norwich, did well with Norwich, comes to Ipswich, manages to absolutely cock it up and then get a four-year deal extension on top of what he's got. <laughs> And then he literally, he's not doing the press conferences. He's got his assistant manager doing it. And he as was on TalkSport earlier. He was on TalkSport earlier. He was sort of thinly veiling, slagging off the owner on TalkSport earlier. He said the, there were fans at the training ground doing flares and the protest. And he said they weren't real fans. Like, honestly, I'm not, I'm not a fan of the whole, oh, at least we're not Ipswich thing. But their Twitter, like, they get about 500 replies every time there's a full time and they haven't won. So I recommend <laughs> go and check it out. Oh, if, you think make Ports, you if you think Ports yeah, are yeah. for a basket case, just look at that. Yeah, if you're really down, go and check out the Ipswich full time tweets. because Yeah, because Sunderland started winning, so you can't look at that anymore. 
exactly. Lee Johnson somehow given some magic potion to make Charlie White. Char- Charlie, White Charlie, Charlie, actually... Charlie White playing six and a half goals above his XG. I'm not having oh, that. He's no Ollie Hawkins. No, it's true. <laughs> it's true. I mean, Lee Johnson did realise that Ada McGeady probably is a good reason person to have in the squad. I mean, I could just have a, Just that. a bit of a good player, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I could have turned up and worked that one out, you dickhead. <laughs> he's overrated, that Johnson. He just brought McGeady back and that's Unless the end of it, really. if he resigns, surely they can't afford to resign him. Don't know, but... Who knows? They're going to get promoted this season, so it won't matter. Then they can resign. Oh, him. fuck. Oh, fucking no. He They're going to walk that. the league, mate. They're going to walk the league. No, they're, they're not. you're not doing it now, don't you? We're going to make a late press, get into third. Sunderland are ready to get into that sixth position. We're getting ourselves ready for it. Oh, the annual God. playoff. Not again. <laughs> the not annual again. playoff versus Sunderland. That's it. I don't, well, want to deal with all I don't want to deal with all those people I know in Sunderland who take the piss. And I don't want to deal with all my mates who support Newcastle saying, How have you lost to Sunderland? Yeah, try, try living in Oxford, Fred. Ugh. It was a fun time last year. Well we, both, we, we, well, we were both in horrible positions with that, weren't we? Can we please not play a team who one of us has got university or current living connections to, please? <laughs> or past living connections, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right, boys. Um, let's get on to it then. Let's get on to our prediction time. Andy, what's your score prediction? Uh, for the Blackpool game, I am going with a... One or draw. Goal scorers? Sean Raggett. At the right end. Like that. And I don't know who's going to score against us. I think it'll be be from a set piece against us, I think. And he's gone with Dan's prediction. He couldn't think of his own like that. What's yours, Freddie? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll give you a tiny bit of reasoning. I don't trust Portsmouth defensively anyway, even if they change it. I'm going to just. I'm going to go over two or draw. A two or draw with Ryan Williams and John Marquis scoring. I'm going to hope that John Marquis actually plays and actually takes those chances, which Back I believe he can train. by the end of the season. Back on the John Marquis train, love it. I'm Back going in. for a two-one Pompey win. Blackpool playing without their best centre back. They are pretty worried about that. They have been stable defensively. Luke, we all know what happens when you lose a really good defender at the back there. They're worried about it, so we should be happy about that one. 2-1, I'm going to go with, and two goal scorers, Marcus Harness for the first goal. Jordi Hawula to come on after 60 minutes, finally let off his leash, gets the winning goal, which means he starts the next game. Let's have it. Free Hawula. Let's get it in, boys. 2-1. Here we go. Get a, get a plane and a banner. Hashtag free Hawula. <laughs> I couldn't afford a plane, but my mate's got a milk float. Let's get this done. Just drive it past the training ground, it's rich style. Flares coming out the back. <laughs> Proper just coloured milk, you know. Just... Right, on that note, we're going to move into the next part of the podcast. <laughs> We've got an excellent interview now with former Pompey captain, Johnny Ertel. We go through everything from starting playing football in Austria all the way through to moving to England, why he liked English football, why the hell he joined Pompey, and going on from there, his work with the Pompey Sporters Trust, and going forward, all that magic coming up. So listen to an interview now with former Pompey captain, Johnny Ertel. All right, so I'm here now with Johnny Ertel, former Portsmouth captain, and Johnny, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thank you very much uh, for the invitation. Looking forward to the podcast, the 100th episode, so <laughs> I'm quite yeah, lucky. Great. 
as we were saying before the show started, I, I was trying to come up with cool ideas and people would be messaging me. I'm pretty rubbish at that kind of thing, Johnny. So you've actually been a lifesaver coming on the show. So, so thanks again, really. Thank you. Yes. You know, it's always a pleasure. You know, um, I've got fond memories about the club. You know, I spent a long time at Pompey, found beautiful friends. So it's always good to chat about Pompey. Yeah. I'll just kick it off. Let's start it. I mean, me playing football uh, at my local club, you know, I was a centre back and um, my dad took me quite a lot to to play every week and stuff. But I got stuck at the level of uh, playing local park football, even though I had some mad skills. Don't let anyone tell you I didn't. So how did you really get into football um, as such as a little kid? Did you did your dad sort of take you to games or how did you really get into football? Um, a funny story that you mentioned because um, my dad didn't allow me to play football. You know, I was born in um, in a garden center. We had a garden shop back home, and um, I always used to play football with my brother. And when like the first scout came from our local um, club, he said to my dad, "Look, this guy, you know, this little boy, he can really play football." And my dad said, um, "No, I don't want that my son become a football player because we have a garden center at home and we have a business. So he rather should go to the university and study something and not become a football player." Um, so basically, I was crying at home uh, and cringing and everything. And after one and a half years, you know, he, I think. He then switched his mind because, um, uh, you know, I chopped off all the flowers back home or the glass houses were broken, you know, because um, with a beautiful strike, I, I dem- demolished all the glass houses at home. So then when I turned 10 or it was 11, quite late, um, I joined then uh, my hometown football club and then obviously my career took off. We're sort of kindred souls there because I actually, when I was working as a teacher, I was told to to clear out the uh, the back garden of all the plants. <laughs> I thought that just meant dig everything up. So I got my uh, rebellious year year six class to go in and, and tear everything out with spades and forks, and they thought that was really cool. Only to tell I was supposed to take all the weeds out, not all the plants. So really you, it was like when 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 you drive in into our garden shop, there were always this year or time of the year, or when spring comes, we have tulips. Okay, and you can imagine how tulips they look like. And when I have a really cool pass, you know, across all the fields, I chopped off all the tulips, and then just a little like I don't know what it's called in English, you know, that it, it, it stands out and that. Uh, drove my family crazy and then he said after a while um johannes please i would like to put the ball in the net and not into the flowers so as you as you move through into teenage years and probably started realizing that football was an option whether or not it was something that your parents encouraged how did you balance that with school and education did you sort of make a deal where you'd try really hard at school if they gave you the option of pursuing football as well or did you find the balance quite difficult I went into a really supportive school. Um, we had like um, a lot of sport, so I was very diverse also. I did a lot of exam in football. I had swimming, I had handball, I had um, um, tracks as well. So I was in a really holistic um, sportive school and um, I benefited from them because when I used to move then in my professional career, I was always one of the best in terms of physicality. And the school where I went, it was a really good school from education, but they really supported me when I had a training in the morning, when I had training in the afternoon, I had a really good balance. So that was really cool. And when you said you're a local club, I mean, when I was, I was doing my, my basic research, you know, sort of like the slapdash research that you do before coming on the podcast, it said you started your career at, at Strumgratz. Is that, is that a move you went from a local team to there or was that your local team? 
Uh, my local team was next door. It was Feldkirchen. It's in the south of, of Graz, where I started off. And then I got scouted from Sturm Graz and I joined them when I was uh, 14. And I was there in their academy. It was not the academy as such we, we have now. It was a little different, but still it was a good level and a good standard. So I joined them and um, it, was a, it was a great time. I moved up to the uh, feeder team then from Sturm Graz, but then my first injury took me out. I had a crucial ligament injury for 18. And then they had a lot of changes at Sturm Graz at my hometown club where a new coach came in and um, yeah, he wanted to change a lot of things. I had an offer then from a fourth tier football club um, next door where I, I lived. And I said, look, you know, this, this coach at Sturm Graz, I was 18, 19. He didn't like me, you know, he wanted to change a lot of things. He wants more like more experienced players. So um, I played in the fourth tier of like Austrian football and I studied, um, I did, I, I chopped some, some trees. I was working in the timber business. I was driving around, you know, delivering flowers. It was beautiful. It was half a year of studying and doing what, what I wanted and playing in the fourth tier. But then eventually Sturm Graz got me back after half a year because I scored a lot of goals as, as a center back. And they said, why have we this talent? You know, he moved away. We need to bring him back. Was the manager that you're talking about there, was that Michael Petrovic, who was the manager you moved in? No, Petri, you, you did a great research. Uh, Pet Petrovic was uh, a great supporter of young players. Um, he really developed myself really, really good. He got me back to the club. Before, we had like a, a Swiss uh, coach at Sturm Graz, and he wasn't keen of all the youngsters. He wanted instant success, and that didn't work. At Sturm Graz had in the in the past huge success in the Champions League. They were playing against Manchester United. I remember when like David Beckham came to Graz, and I was like uh, a ball boy. For me, it, it was a dream come true. But similarity to uh, Portsmouth, it came with a price. This success, this Champions League, I like the FA Cup in two thousand eight in, in Pompey. So uh, the president um, spent a lot of money, and then the club were running out of money, administration, and then. Myself came through the youngsters because there were no money left and I got the chance to become a professional football player at this club. And Misha Petrovic, he was a great supporter and a great coach uh, who really got a beautiful team spirit amongst us youngsters. And he's now very successful in, in Japan. The experiences you had there with the team who you just said followed a similar path to Portsmouth when things started falling apart a bit. Do you think that helped with what later did happen at Portsmouth and how you interacted with the club and the youngsters who were at the club at Portsmouth when they were dealing with similar things you experienced or you knew about back home? Yeah, you're right. I think this experience molded me because I also saw it with my own eyes, how experienced players dealing with the situation and with the youngsters and how important it is. With our time, we had Ben Close coming through, uh, Connor Chaplin coming through, Adam Webster coming through. So a huge prospect. And, you know, look where um, Adam is playing right, right now. So I found myself in a similar position, uh, but just 10 years or 13 years later. You made a move to, to Austria. I'm going to try and get it right. It's Austria Vine, who got those... Sorry, just for those who don't know, uh, one of the two teams have not been relegated from the top flight. They've won about 27-odd trophies. Why did you leave such a big club and make the move to sort of take the plunge and move on to Palace? For me, it was always a dream to play in England, no matter what. I did my final exam in English at my school and I read the book from Nick Hornby, Fever Pitch, about Arsenal. And I did my dissertation about this book and yeah, it really got me. 
uh, England and I wanted to play there no matter what and then I had a really successful time at Austria Vienna we were playing UEFA League or Europa League at this time I was part of the national team in preparation for the Euros 2008 in our hometown country and out of a sudden I got a call like from from my agent and said look there's an opportunity to join Palace for a trial and there was just two Austrian players there it was Paul Schana I used to play for for Wigan and West Brom and also Emmanuel Pogatex for Middlesbrough and then I joined a palace under Neil Warnock four days training and it turned out to be a life-changing moment for me and it was really really funny because I didn't think I was quite the best at training but uh, I sat down with like the experienced British players I told them about like yes we are not a skiing nations you know yes we do play football uh, yes we are singing in lederhosen and the sound of music is beautiful so it was it was good fun and like the assistant manager Mick Jones then uh, told me afterwards Johnny you fit in this team because you are a Crystal Palace player you are within the team already integrated if that makes sense although you know when you come from a different country it's a, always a big like risk if you take somebody on because they are not used to 10 month you know full training and full schedule i come from austria where we have different with a with a with an autumn season and a spring season and there's a huge gap between um around christmas so they took a risk but it turned out to be like a great move for me do you think the english league should have a winter break do you think that's just just from an outside perspective do you think that would be beneficial to the english leagues Yes, it would be beneficial, especially around like the new year, but it's very integrated in like the history, in all the stories. And I know why, you know, the Boxing Day, for example, it's fantastic to play. I loved it. But afterwards, uh, when you come then the championship clubs, you know, into the FA round and November, uh, January coming, sorry, it's very, very hard, you know, to keep uh, your mental level up and to prevent yourself from injuries. So a little break would do uh, the football in England very good. If we jump forward slightly to when you left Sheffield United and moved across to Portsmouth, how did that move come about? And what was it? I don't know if attracted is even the right word, because it was an interesting time at Pompey. What made you interested in joining in joining Pompey at that point? First of all, I had difficult season at Sheffield United because I picked up my second ligament injury there and I just played nine games. And it was for me a decision time, moving back to Austria, signing a three-year contract with my hometown club or stay in the UK. I changed then my, 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 my agency because my goal was I wanted to stay in England. And I always had this dream in my, in my, in my head and my vision and my goal. I want to lead out a British team. I would like to be a captain. And I was then um, 29 years of age and I thought, why? going back to Austria, I would like to have a proper challenge. And then this phone call came from Pompey, from Michael Appleton, and he said, yes, Johnny, I know um, we are in a very difficult situation, but we need somebody like you with an experience. And he knew that what my strengths are. And I thought, okay, I put myself under a lot of risk because I signed monthly a contract. But with Pompey, I used to play down there. I used to play at Fretton Park. I know, you know, um, the sound of the bells, you know, when like um, John Westwood like ring the bells, the special atmosphere and everything. So for me, it was then a no-brainer basically because I thought, you know what, life is all about experiences and challenges. I take it. And I was down there. You mentioned the one-month contracts there. 
was it a case if you were offered a one month contract and told we don't really know how many times we can renew this or were you told that they ideally would renew it for a number of months or was it just a case of literally finding out at the end of every month whether you were being kept on for financial reasons? It was finding out every single month, but it turned out to be an unbelievable experience for my life. <laughs> so um, yes, it was it was risky because imagine I picked up an injury. It would have been maybe the end of my career with like 30, but we had such a great team spirit and it was so cool. We had a lot of players. Look, I've got 150 telephone numbers in, in my telephone book from Pompey. It was like players were coming in and out on a regular basis. Some stayed two days, some stayed a half a year. You, you never know. It was full of surprises. And to handle it was actually the biggest challenge. And it was really cool. It was very difficult because when you when you think about the long-term, long-term ideas, they weren't there, you know, because promises were top, made on top of promises. Um, you don't know the club. Is the club being taken over, you know, um, from which party is taking over? Is there like a financial boost after that? So, but nevertheless, it turned out that we had a really good team, basically a really good team in terms of character. And it was, I quite like enjoyed. So you've, you've been well prepared at your previous clubs, you know, you've been through this stuff with financial problems. You made the move to England, you know, Warnock is sort of a, a character and starts, he brings you in and, you know, you seem to slip into the teams really well, team spirit. And, and you get into your first game at Portsmouth. You play Oldham. I was actually there with my dad in the front end. I, was, I said to him, I was going to speak to you. And he was like, remember to say this, because I remember you were, you were there. And you've unfortunately scored your own goal in, on your debut playing at centre-back. How did you feel? I mean, it's probably not the start you wanted for your, for your Portsmouth career. You, it was a disaster for me. Imagine you join a new football club and you want to show the fan base what you can and then you score the only goal. It's an own goal and then you get subbed in the 82nd minute. And after the game, I, uh, I went back home to my wife and uh, my sister was also there um, um, accidentally in England because she made a garden trip and said, it can't get any worse. For me personally, it can't get any worse. People don't know me. I score an own goal. I get subbed. So, <laughs> it, you know, there is... Just, it can't, It only can get better, basically. And yes, I needed to take place on the bench for the next four games, but I showed them in training. And when I came then on as a sub, you know, that I really wanted to be part of this team, that I really wanted to show what I can. And I turned the tables around then. It was always difficult for me because I just arrived 24 hours before the game against Oldham at the club. And then Michael Appleton said to me, look, Johnny, you're playing center back. And I didn't have a proper like a team training before this for weeks. And I knew it, <laughs> it could have, could have been difficult, but yes, it was just, it was just a learning curve. Normally there's quite high expectations as football fans. And especially now Pompey are sort of back on the rise again towards where they should be in the football league. There's sort of an expectation of success. But around that time, from memory, there was a lot more patience in terms of results. I mean, obviously, there was that 21-game streak. And I don't remember fans being angry, annoyed, overly frustrated, because you could see the effort was there. Did you find that when you were sort of in the early stages of your time at Pompey, that there was a lot of patience and less, maybe less pressure from the fans? Exactly right. There was a lot of appreciation. I think this is the right word from the Pompey fan base, because they knew it's... It's a very difficult time, difficult circumstances around the club. They were really unsecure uh, what happens with the club. And they were just grateful that there are players there that we can still run the business. 
So they came to me and said, Johnny, thank you very much. I know you took a lot of risk. They were aware of our situation with the monthly contracts. But still, you know, people like yourself and the other players, you know, you really mean Pompey, you know, and you know what Pompey means to us, to the fan base. And that was very, very nice. That was very nice. And yes, that I make their own goal at my debut. I think that wasn't, <laughs> that, that, that wasn't the issue. They wanted to see the people down there who are fighting for the club. And the club got taken over because there are people there at Pompey who really care about the club, you know. And the spirit we had under Gaiden uh, when the takeover happens that reflected also the fan base. That was I was really proud of. So you've got Michael Appleton who, who signed you and brings you to Portsmouth. Um, and then he, he moves on in, in November, I think it was. Guy Whittingham comes in. And you're talking about that spirit of the of the players and the fans and, you know, bringing in a, a fan legend like Guy Whittingham as the manager, I think sort of compounds that as well, just before the takeover happens later in January. What was the difference that Guy made to the team when he comes in in this difficult situation compared to Michael Appleton? He knew the um, club inside out. He's a club legend. He used to work with the youngsters before, so he ticked all boxes and he was aware of the situation. When you would have brought in a completely new person, he wouldn't understand. But guy knows the place inside out. So that was very beneficial. He has a huge like network of players um, he worked with because of his coaching role mm, within the FA. So that was very, very beneficial at this time. And with his calmness and with his, with his character, he was for me perfect. Um, and he also trusted in us players. He knew that there are players there who came for Pompey for various reasons. Some of them, they didn't get a job or they didn't get a, a club. You know, they wanted to move on. Others, they had a family there, you know. Others, like Connolly, for example, um, he was 37. He still wanted to play some football, but he, mo- he wanted to move on in a different segment of his career. So he brought, or, or Ajiman, for example, he had good, good contacts for him. And he, he turned out to be a great move for us. With, with, with like Aji, um, also at the end of his career. So it was very good to have him because he knew the characters, the older ones were very important for the youngsters to build something up for the future. And I think he was instrumental and very, very important for this difficult time, especially with his, with his character. You mentioned Patrick Adjaman then. It's quite funny. I went to the Pompey fans uh, conference they have for the start of the season um, and I was chatting away to a couple of the players and um, I remember I was talking to Adam Webster and I asked him, you know, what he thought for the season. I remember this is the first season in League Two and he turned around and said, you know, we're going to win the league. Um, and Patrick Adjaman came over and was like, don't be saying that <laughs> to all the fans there. But what, what, was, what are those two players like? What was Patrick Adjaman like actually as a player to, to be as a teammate? Because he was one of those players for me that just came across as a really good guy. Yeah, super guy. I tried to teach, teach him the guitar in the clubhouse, so it turned out to be uh, a huge task, actually. But he can play a few echo, uh, accords, you know. Um, I, I, I showed him a song. No, and lovely guy, Archie. A lovely guy. Yes, a really target man and a really team player. So he, it, was, it was great having him with a, with a good sense of humor, to be fair. Just a, a great character who always like was at the end of his career. As a, as a son at home and and, and still li- li- lived in, in London, so cool. And Ed, Adam Webster was a Rolls Royce for me. Um, when I, I never forget when we played um, up at Coventry, he came on as a sub and he stumbled across his own feet on the on on the right right hand side of the pitch because he was growing so fast. Uh, and he was still still long. We were all laughing, but we knew he had like really good skills. And within 
where we were in our position for the youngsters, it was the best ever with 16, 17 to play league games. And um, he really benefited from this time. He was thrown in into a first team environment. He got loaned out and he's he coming back under Richie Parker and, and scored his goal or the, on, on the off it was. So Adam was always down to earth and a very nice character, also a great team player and, and a local guy. Was it quite easy for you to identify the young players who you thought were going to succeed more in later career? You mentioned there about Adam Webster, but some of the other Pompey youth prospects there coming through, like, yes, what your Ben Close, your Jack Watmore, your Connor Chaplins, out of a, a big sea of young players that were there that maybe didn't end up playing in League One or above standard, was, it, was there obviously a difference at that point? I think it's the nature of the game that some players just flourish. But being in our position where we don't have the biggest budget, you give more young young players a better chance. Not just one, you give four or five players a chance. And then maybe you've got, like it was, two, three, four players, uh, the chance to really develop, to experience first-team football in a very young age and to play in front of a big crowd. You know what that means for a young age, to handle this challenge, to handle this the, the pressure to handle the news, you know, it is what it is. You know, Pompey is a one city club and you've got a lot of low, lot of people all over the world following you. It's not like that you're playing for um, a, a, a small club, you're playing for a big club. And that really helps, you know, once you experience that, once, once you turn out and play on, on the pitch at Fredden Park, you have this in your locker and you will never forget. Do you think that's just, just, this is just a little bit off topic. Do you think that that's a model that a club who aren't in such financial difficulties could really do with playing in English football? So you might have some better senior pros around and people, but do you think that young players should be given more of an opportunity in the way that Portsmouth were forced to, but do you think the young players should be given more of a chance in the first team to develop? Nowadays, it's very difficult because when you are a manager and you come to a club, uh, you need you need to deliver results. It's full stop. It's just about the communication from the club and what's the uh, DNA of the club or the philosophy. When a club turns out um, and said, look, you know, we have a certain like goal with a certain vision, you know, to implement a certain number of youngsters within the team, you will see how will it receive within the fan, fan base, you know, if you not get promoted instantly. It also depends in which environment you work. But I don't think we should all push the young players into a club. Our young players will develop anyway. You, you would need to give them the right platform to develop. And then, even if it's good or not, maybe it's not Pompey, his club, maybe it's a different club where he re- can really develop. Where he's maybe outside from home where he does your own stuff or the coach, you know, really, really supports him. So, so I don't think you need to push the young players. You need to give them the right platform to develop. Well, one of the things we noticed with the young players around that time was the physical side of the game in that there were a lot of quite technically quite good young players at Pompey, but they were, they were just getting out-muscled by really physical teams in League Two. Did you notice any difference in style of football in League Two? It's a good question. You know, when you work in the under-16, for example, you've mm. got different phases of development. You've got the six or the 15-year-olds who is the same size as me. 180, and you have got a 15-year-old who is 140, okay? So when you come then under 16, under 14, obviously there is a physical challenge. So when you are not that big with like 180, for example, you need to adjust your game. You need to do a little bit quicker passing. You need to outplay or outsmart your opponent. It's a, it's a great development for a youngster, you know? So um, I see this from this perspective. I think it's good. 
you know, when he has this challenge, because it will make him a better football player after that. I always saw a difficulty when like a youngster from our like academy got taken from Cardiff or a bigger academy or like, let's say, Arsenal, Chelsea, all those. And he has this badge on, on, on his chest, you know, where he got a lot of pressure and he when he can't develop him. And then he got slowed out again back to a lower league football club where the pressure is then too high because he couldn't handle like the Arsenal badge, you know. So I, I found this natural transition playing at a football club like Pompey at League One, League Two, much, much better for me, for my understanding, are more chances than like playing at a big academy nowadays and can't handle the pressure. No, that's cool. I think it's I think it is important for players to take their time and develop in, in the lower leagues. And you see some really good examples of that with some people like Matt Clark and Adam Webster at Portsmouth. But mm. just moving on to the time when the, the club get taken over, obviously there's a lot of anxiety going on before that point of what's going to happen, who's going to come in, is Changa I going to try and buy the club or or whatever, and everyone's anxiously waiting to hope that's not the case. But what was the feeling around the club when the trust came in? Did they share a vision with the players of where it's going to go and try and sort of like bound everyone together on this sort of united mission? I think it all started at crew at this game. We could, um, unfortunately, the game against crew got postponed because I still have these pictures, you know, of the news when the high five p- picture and when like um, some supporters were running on the pitch at crew. I think this was the rebirth of the football club because we could sense there's something in the air. People are working hard to get this uh, right. Yes, we have some debts, but there is a really core of people there at Pompey who really cares about the club. This was the start of the rebirth of the club. And after this game, we were playing good on the pitch. We were playing better on the pitch. The results were coming. And also this whole takeover was then smooth uh, with like um, the shares and everything. And the trust didn't come to us players at this time to say, look, we are the trust, we're taking over. It was just the hard work in the background up until all this paperwork were done with like legal jurisdiction. Uh, so there was a bunch of paperwork to finish everything off to file this in. But eventually it turned out to be a great success story because the trust turned out to be a flagship across all the British clubs in terms of fan ownership. And then when you when you look back and with the trust, we got promoted to League One. I think that was a story itself. I will, it will stay for us forever. And I was so lucky to be part of this trust and to know the people, how they work. So... So much effort, guys, goes into that. I could not imagine. That's also the reason I wanted to be on the trust because I wanted to see it with my own eyes. Look, I was a football player. I know how it feels to go out and threaten, you know, to go down the stairs, up the stairs, to look left to the, to the bench, to look to Fretton Park, to stand in the middle of the pitch to lead a team out. But I did not know how it feels to be on the trust, you know. What is, what is the work there? What is the work for a secretary? What is the work for a financial manager within the club? And I was luckily to experience that at Pompey Football Club. And I can tell you really the meetings we had, you know, the decisions we took, the, just the time people spent voluntarily. It's amazing. I, I have never seen this before. I've never seen this before. And also to be really authentic to the fan base, you know, to be really transparent. That was also a big challenge because, you know, there are all, a lot of people, you are an, you're in a really a, a precious position for the football club to, to act in the best interest of a football club. And I was amazed and impressed about all the people who really cared so much about the club. I think that one of the issues we had with the, the chain of owners was that the club was is essentially rotten at the core, kind mm, of right, exactly. right in the middle of the club. And then 
when that PST comes in, as you say, that transparency just elevates that level of trust. So people like Ian McKins and Mark Catlin are just, in my eyes, just they were completely trustworthy people. And I would have, yeah, I trusted them with my club for the first time in quite a while. I trusted my club with anyone. Because the, the club was so far away, you know, from trust. Because look at the different owners, you don't know, you know, this guy goes bankrupt, you know, this guy has, has no low liquidity, where is my club going? And you wanted to have like a person who trusts, and then the PSD comes in. And we put a lot of hope into the club. Coming back to your question, it was very, very good with you mentioned Achima to, to Adam Webster, don't say this to get promoted. It was also my, actually, mistake what I did in the first press conference when we were in League One, me as a club captain, telling the whole fan base, yes, we get promoted, not doing my homework about the budget we have. And we put a lot of hope. And yes, there was hope there. And it's beautiful hope in football. But we were not ready. We had a new back four. We were not ready for promotion. We were far off promotion, guys. And so, you know, that's a reason it was a little bit difficult at the start. When we would have said afterwards, hey, Rome wasn't built in one day. A mid-table place in League One. Thank you very much, guys. You know, that's all we need. We need like a full house at Fretton Park to pay the debts off. We need like your support. We need to build the academy. It would have been different. But now we are Postman Football Club. We need to get promoted. So that wasn't the case. But I learned from this basically a lot. How would you describe Mark Catlin behind the scenes? Because he gets a bit of, uh, there's a small minority of fans who see his monthly question and answers at Pompey. And they, a small minority say that he says the same things every month and that he's just saying what the Eisners want him to say, etc. And that he's running a business, not a football club. And I think looking at where the clubs come from with him in, in a senior role, it's quite harsh. What would you say about him as, a, as an individual behind the scenes running the club and, and how he feels about the club? When... He joined the Pompey Football Club. I thought, like, it's good to have somebody like him um, in this position. He comes from a business background. It's good to have him here. Simon Ferry, it was a time when Simon Ferry called him up because of his trousers and his suit. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was brilliant. Uh, so he had also a good sense of humor, you know, because we were players, we were chatting about him and Simon Ferry called him up and uh, just pretended to be somebody else, you know, uh, and said like, look, you have a new suit, you know, and everything what you're wearing, it was hilarious. And Mark loved it, you know, so it's a good guy, you know, who was very also, also close. And I think coming back to your question, what he did for the football club, I think it was very good over the couple of years. Of course, right now, the fan base, you know, the last years, you've got new ownership, you know, you don't, you didn't get promoted right now. It's time that Pompey makes the next step. And so the pressure arises, that's clear. But he's good what he does, Mark. And he knows the place inside out. He knows the people. He really cares ab ab about it also. And he had a lot of experience right now because he was also in the part of transition with the new ownership. He understands also the trust, you know, people, what uh, the trust role still is within the club, the fan base. So it's good to have somebody like him at the football club. Just going back on the pitch briefly, did you enjoy the physical League Two battling on the pitch style of football or do you prefer the quicker, sort of more attractive style of football? Because I, I remember one, I can't remember what game it was, and pretty much off the ball, I remember you being literally pushed over the hoardings by a player in front of the Fratton end. There's a lot of off the ball, argy-bargy. Do you like getting in a sort of a, a scrap, a bit of a battle like that? Or do you prefer playing that sort of attractive football with sort of younger, smaller players trying to yeah, play the other team off the pitch. Mm, as I do right now, to 
TV punditry for an Austrian broadcaster. So I'm covering the Europe League. It's my special topic, what you just mentioned, because on Thursday I cover uh, an Austria team against Tottenham. And at that just did some research with the coach, one of my best friends here, uh, who, who coaches the Austrian side about like playing styles. And look, in Austria, there's like in the playing style is more like short passing, you know, the formation. Uh, we are in country of developing youngsters right now, as you see from Red Bull Salzburg, you know, a good foundation to give them the foundation, foundation to, to prosper or to shine. And I'm right now at a part of my career where I'm right now and seeing myself as a manager or as a coach, you know, within the football industry, then for me, it's like the football minded game far, far more attractive than like the physical side of it, you know. But sometimes, and dating back to the game you mentioned, you know, when I pushed over about it, I'm, it still hurts here at my hand, to be fair, you know, I had like a scan then, and I still feel it, that sometimes you come across like a physical side and you need to deal with that. And sometimes it's good that you have this experience because how you how can you learn it, you know? You, you need to show them also, okay, I'm a good football player, but, you know, if you really want, I can also do this stuff. You know, that's very, very important in some phases within the game to win this, this like, um, battle against, like, my opponent, um, to win this sliding tackling, you know, to get this first ball or the second ball in, in certain areas of the pitch. So I think you need, you need to learn that, and it's also quite important. But, yes, I do, like, a favourite, of course, like, the passing style, you know, being smart with the ball, you know, find yourself in the positions. Because when you have a team all of, like, physical players, you know, they get, they get tired very quickly when you just move the ball in the right direction. And I remember when we used to play against the Rayo Vallecano, it was a pre-match game at Spreton Park. Guys, against the Spanish side, I was finished after 30 minutes, you know. They were playing tiki-taka with us, you know, and they needed three days for recovery. So you talked about what you're doing at the moment with your punditry covering football in Europe. And um... my, my wife was calling because she said, like, look, I should just say hello, you know, to Portsmouth. We used to live there. For I thought it was my phone. Was I thought it was, was my phone going at, at I was playing the guitar and she was singing at, at Kotai. It was brilliant. <laughs> love that i was literally just like that's my phone going off actually yours. um so yeah you're um in doing punditry at the moment for tv and you spoke about maybe wanting to become a manager would you want to come back over to, to england to do that is that your aim or because you're actually covering european football now so do you want to stay where you are you know do you want to come back to england yeah i would i would love to um for me english football is the best and once you experience english football you will always love English football. I can, I can talk to anybody here, you know, with my friends who moved to England, who played there for a bit, you know, some of them Austrian players that played there for a couple of months, some stayed longer. But once you get the hook, it's, it's, like, it's like an injection of British football club. You will love the game. You will love the mentality. You will love the intensity. This is the um, make it or break it. If you can cope with this atten- uh, intensity. But once once you 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 got it, like there's there's no better feeling. And you have in British football, just your highs are very high and the lows really low. You know, there's not like in our country. Mm, yes, it goes nicely. You know, it's steady. It's Austria, yeah. But in England, you get full full blast, and and that uh, leaves a footprint within your your philosophy, within your thinking, and that's the beauty of the game. And yes, I would love to come back to England. I wanted to come back last year, 
already but then corona kicked in and with the travel regulations but i'm sure i will come back and also for my kids because our eldest daughter helena she had got her like yes her route she 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 had in england and i got a son sebastian i would love them to experience england england more and with lovely friends still at, at portsmouth and where i used to live but there wasn't time unfortunately with the travel restrictions so far Cool. So there's a lot of young English managers and young, just young managers across different things getting into football now. I think it's becoming more of a, a route that players, I think, actually sometimes now nowadays need a more a manager who sort of understands the players rather than a manager who's going to come in and necessarily just like shout and be an aristocratic dominant manager, sort of do what I say, etc. So I think young managers are given a better chance. Do you think that's why? Young manager, yes and no. It's all about handling, handling the players. It's 20 years ago, it was completely different. You can pretend you're the old school British manager. You are running the football club like a, like a monarchy or something, you know, game over, full stop. Right now, it's the time where you, you know, the personal interchange, the man management skills, this is the right word. This is nowadays, you know, where it really counts. The authentic style of your management. We three right now, we are talking, we can build up a training session. It's no problem, you know, give the players the platform they can play. They are finished players. It's just about the authentic conversation with the players to, um, to tell them what you think in an honest way. This is all it matters right now. I came across over the last five years to so many managers to my research about like the Europe League, different countries, different thinkings of football philosophies. For me, it's just authentic. You need to have a goal. You need to have a vision, how you play. You need to adapt. You need to be also flexible. This is the beauty of the game, how you can get these 20 characters within one boat and you get the best out of them. But be really authentic who you are. Be really authentic who you are. And then you get the best out of your players. And I think this is, this is so interesting about football. You know, and and young managers, yes, they, they do have a lot of like good skills in terms of data, status um, analysis with like playing styles and so on. But there are still old, older managers out there. You know, look, the managers you have at Everton, you know, I mean, he's evergreen. Look, and he just beaten uh, Tottenham in a thriller 5-4. Five, five, it's great. So I think it's about the man management skills and that you develop your, your playing styles, the way of football, and you still keep on track and be still young. I think when you say, going back a little bit, when you were at Palace, you said there about managers being authentic with their players. And as soon as you said that, the name that came into my head is Neil Warnock, from what I've seen of his management style. And you you see what you get, you get what you see with Neil Warnock. How would you compare his management style, some of the other managers you've, you've played under? He was the most important manager I had in my career, Neil Warnock. First, I thought, where am I? At Crystal Palace. Our first preseason, it was at Cornwall, where he had his house in Warnock. And I will never forget this. We didn't have proper training facilities. What I was used to in Austria, when we go on a, uh, a training camp with Austria Vienna, it was perfect. Okay. It was really, we were like, we were winning the league, we were cup winners, and everything was perfect. And he took the whole squad to Cornwall, where his house was playing golf. For me, it was like I'm at, in a di- different world. Okay. But I learned that that for him, the team spirit is very important. And he's very honest. He said to me, Johnny, you are shit, he said, or you're good. You know. So there was just black and white with him. And I knew exactly where I stood. But it hurt. It really hurt at the start. Because it was for me a different country, different language, different changing room. And 
in his eyes, I wasn't just good enough. And when I was not in like the first starting 11, I would have completely out of the window. So I had two options, crying back home or do my best to roll my sleeves up and work hard and convince him, his opinion, that I'm a valuable player. And it changed completely my mindset. I needed to work for myself because I can cringe at home and call my, my, my other friends, ah, oh, this manager, ah, oh, he's rubbish, you know, and he doesn't like me. No, work on yourself, work hard. And then I found out, okay, I need to be better than the rest of the British players. And I started to do a lot of like mental work. I started to do, um, to visualize things, you know, before a game against, I knew for him Sheffield United was one of the most important games or when we played against like Newcastle or all the games, I prepared myself, you know, I was running a movie in my head. I go out, you know, at, uh, at Palace. I was on the pitch, you know, I saw myself. I prepared myself, okay, I'm playing against this player, you know. For example, uh, it was Karu or other players, Apong Lahore, when, when we played against them. Okay, he was quick, you know, high stand, you know, he's a right footer, he's a left footer, he's physically strong. And I needed to prepare myself, you know, visually 100%. And then I was a better player and... I needed to work, you know, I was, my own management was important, you know, my personal management, you know, and then I made the next step in my career. And I'm really grateful that Neil Warner crossed my, my path. He's a great character to be fair, you know, I need to laugh afterwards, but sometimes I really, cause he caused my nerves, but um, he showed me just authentic. It's his opinion. Okay, that's it. But I need to convince him that I'm better than the others. And then uh, it really taught me lessons. And afterward, I'm really grateful that he crossed my path. So you've literally had, I'm going to say, lots of different challenges in, in your life. And the, the, what I'm going to take away from this conversation as well is that you've always managed to sort of drive yourself on and stick to the path and, and, and to yourself and what's true. And you've managed to overcome that and, you know, done really well from it. What do you say just quickly to wrap up the pod, really, to the young listeners listening now? What's your what's your advice to any young person now who wants to get into football? Because obviously you've done this really successfully. So what can you share with them? Is there is there a few things or a message you could send to them? They should enjoy what they're doing. It's just playing football is one of the beautiful, beautiful things in life. You play out there. There are no boundaries. You can you can come from wherever you want in the world. There's just one goal to score a goal and to have fun. So this is why I love football and music. There are no boundaries. And this is the this is the message, actually. I always played football because I loved it. You know, the free spirit. You know, you're completely in your zone. You play with your friends. You can have a chat afterwards. You know, you outplayed your opponent, inch perfect in the stands. You know, you're lucky, you know, and you need to cope also with like, oh, I lost, you know. Guys, football, it doesn't change when you play, you know, your Sunday league football or with your friends, you know, it's it's just about like having fun, basically. And when you still have this element, having fun, the rest is smooth. Sometimes in like the professional football, and yes, you're going through some phases where you think like, I don't have fun in my environment because this manager doesn't like me or these circumstances are very, very difficult. But then you need to work on yourself and also seek some advice from experienced players, from your setup you've got, you know, maybe outside of the football club to somebody you trust, you know. So um, having an open, authentic conversation, what you really your feelings are, you know, when you're in the football industry, sometimes it's very difficult and challenging, but it's all about like fun, experience, friendship, society, community. That's it. That's amazing. Johnny, I've got absolutely no doubt that you're going to have a really successful managerial career. So we're going to keep an eye on that. But thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a blast, mate. And we really appreciate your time because we know it's actually gone on for a bit longer than expected. And uh, yeah, we're really grateful. Anytime, guys.
a text from my wife say hello to all the Portsmouth friends. We really miss Pompey and hopefully to see you all very, very soon. Okay. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure, Thank guys. To talk no, to cheers you. again, cheers, Johnny. Take care. <laughs> Bye, ciao. Thanks, Johnny, for coming on the podcast. That was a really nice interview there, Andy, me and you. Having a little chat before, I'm going to point this out, before the lovely game against Bristol. We were confident. We recorded it the day before. <laughs> Hence, we were pretty positive in the interview and we sounded a lot more sunny than the, the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, that was, uh, that was Tuesday morning, wasn't it? We recorded that. So it was, we were thinking, yeah, 100th episode, have a little chat with Johnny Ertel get three points against the gas it'll be a, a strong positive 100th episode so it's a bit of a a bit of a mixed bag in the end but yeah nice to have a good bit of positivity on a pod that has obviously had some negativity involved as well and gotta say that talking to johnny as well he's, he's such a nice like really genuinely like before and after he's a really nice guy he even actually stuck around for the last 10 minutes one of his kids needed to go to a horse riding lesson so what a legend yeah good <laughs> commitment anyway. <laughs> that is commitment to the cause. I would have left you, Andy. I would have, no, I'm not bothered about it. I would have walked out the front door. Even much though I'm... Pre- <laughs> much appreciated, you. That's uh, good to know, mate. You can't get through a single podcast without a little, little needle, can you? It's just no. an integral part of it now. It's a little it's, Easter it's egg. It's all a bit of fun at the end of the podcast, Andy. You know, <laughs> let's be honest, we try to celebrate the 100th episode. You got the pie popper. You had no paper in it. That just sums up Pompey's uh, loss to Bristol Rovers, really, doesn't it? All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Until next time, play up Pompey. <laughs> You have been listening to the PO Forecast for Pompey News Now. Available on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow PO Forecast and Pompey News Now on Twitter for more information. And there is the full-time whistle.